0: Welcome, everyone. Doctor Anthony Crenada Fourth here, also known as Doctor Finance. You're on a Doctor Finance Live podcast. We have an incredible guest today. His name is Glenn Moorshauer. folks. This guy is an actor. He's a he's a speaker. He's he's so many things. It's incredible. I mean, I would have to sit here for for about an hour and just go over his accolades. Glenn is a, a Clubhouse friend um, as well, and uh, we're, we'll tell you some some stories we had on Clubhouse. But first, let's introduce. Glenn Morshaw. welcome, Glenn. How are you, sir?
1: Well, good morning. I've got to be at your level of energy, Doctor <laughs> Finance. I love it. You're like a fresh cup of coffee first thing <laughs> in the morning. I'm good, buddy. I'm I'm good. I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. We have an uncharacteristic thick layer of ice outside. A really thick layer of ice. It's very cold here. Not to you in <laughs> uh, in your neck of the woods. I know you will. You know all about winters and cold, but uh, we're not used to getting that down here in Dallas, and we have been holed up in our home for the last three days. It's not safe to drive, but today is the first day where it's beginning to melt. So, after our interview, I'm going to see what life looks like outside again, and go to the grocery store again, and do do activities. It'll be fun. But I'm glad to be here.
0: Thank you, glad appreciate you. And, and just to give you a little heads up on the format here. Sorry, adjust my camera. Um, the format, basically, we'll do a quick 30-second snapshot if you want to tell us a little about yourself real briefly. Then we're going to get into your story. Sure. All right? So we'll spend some time with that. And then I got about 20 questions or so uh, that we'll go into. And actually, I just remembered, before, we were talking, folks, before we, we started the the, the uh, show, and um, I forgot to tell you, Glenn, I appreciate you. We, we jumped on a quick call during my uh, Clubhouse interview on Friday night, and uh, I just wanted to say, uh, I apologize for being brief because I I was juggling all those. Well, you were in the middle of something, brother. It's okay. It's okay. okay. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Glenn. So yeah, if you want to start out with a like quick thirty seconds, uh, you know, snapshot, and then we'll get into the, we'll dive into the big story at that point after that.
1: Yeah, my name is Glenn, and I am a grateful member of the human race. I don't say that to be woo woo, foo foo, new thought, new age. I say it because it's how I really feel. I. Of much greater importance than my acting career, which I've been blessed to be really successful in and at, but I am a grateful member of the human tribe, and I have a tremendous reverence for life itself. I'm in love with this assignment. I don't just see it as a gift. I see it as an assignment. There's work to be done. There's a saying that to whom much is given, much is expected, and I have been given plenty. And I'm not talking in terms of just abundance or physical things. Although I have all the things I want, I've been given a gift of awareness and um, and a really healthy heart and head and a heart and mind coherence that, um, that makes life enjoyable and fun and interesting and multidimensional. And I'm happy to be
0: here this morning to share some of that. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate you, man. Honored to have you here, by the way. And Glad folks, we, we were joking earlier, but this this interview is like a, a, a case study on persistency. So, so Glenn was actually uh, he was my clubhouse guest through Laura Langmeyer. I think it was May or June twenty twenty one. I can't believe we're in twenty twenty three. And uh, just uh, Glenn has been coming on many stages, and I've been going to his room and following him around, likewise. And finally, we got we got him here because. I think I don't know, Glenn, what was it? Was it persistency that got you got you here today or, or was it something? else? No,
1: it. I mean, not to shoot that idea down. It was actually an admiration of you. Oh, thank you. I mean, for real, um, because I've had people that persist a lot and it is an ongoing. No, I never said no to you. I've always said we will do it. And it was a matter of having the right opportunity to do it. But um, someone can persist all they want. And if I don't have respect for them, the answer will be an ongoing no. But it will. And that won't ever change no matter how many times they knock on my door. But listen, I think you are an incredible human being. I think you do a lot for people. I don't think you do. I know you do. And you do it a lot consistently, right? Which is more than just doing a lot. You consistently do a lot on Clubhouse. And you do it at no charge, right? You bring people together, you uh, you edify human beings, you lift them up, you draw attention to their life, their purpose, their value, their careers, their humanity. I mean, you're a you're a standout and stand-up dude. And I think that you're the kind of person that the heavens smile upon. And I don't take statements that like that lightly. I feel like there is a There is a uh, consciousness in this world that is looking down, and I don't know if they refer to you as Dr. Finance from above. They might have a more personal uh, relationship with you by name, but I feel certain that life smiles upon you um, based on the way you show up in the world. That's the only reason I'm here. I'm certainly not here to promote anything. I don't need anything. I'm here because I admire what you do for others. And when you asked me to do your show, I was honored. So, uh, I mean, the fact that you were persistent is admirable, but you were going to have me do this with you at some point anyway, whether you were persistent or not. So, uh, congratulations on your persistence, but I'm truly here because I admire you.
0: Glenn, I want to, first of all, thank you. I felt that like that was, uh, I, that was a bonus today. I didn't expect that, <laughs> yeah,
1: but it's the truth. It's not for these cameras. That's I'm saying it. And in fact, I almost wish the cameras were off to say that to you, so that you would you would hear the purity of it. Um, that's not that's not for the benefit of others, but those who are watching this right now, if you've listened to Doctor Finance at all on Clubhouse, this is what he does. He lifts people up all the time,
0: and you're a damn good host. Thank you, Glenn. And and just, just to, to add why I wanted you as, as a guest, Glenn, just that one night. Well, let's go back to the first night I met Glenn on Clubhouse. Um, we had a room. I think you were there maybe. You're only supposed to be there two hours. I think you stayed like four or five. And yeah. the people like very few stages. Do I feel that the uh, the guest really connected in the way that you did? I mean, we have great people come through the stage, but you you're something special about the way you speak that I know people were just, there, there was no squatting in that room. <laughs> Everyone mm. had their attention on you the whole time because you were dropping so much wisdom. And folks, just as, I, I want to give you a little heads up because Glenn's a humble man, so I just want to tell you what he's done. He's appeared on over 250 films and television shows, 250 in a career spanning six decades. So he's a famous actor, but he's a famous speaker too. His first appearance was in the 1975 feature film Drive-In, but you probably know him as Agent Aaron Pierce on the highly acclaimed Fox series tw- uh, Twenty Four as General Moreau. They let you keep your last name. for That, that was not on. That was
1: not on Twenty Four. On in Transformers, which is oh. the next thing that will be mentioned. They uh, they named the character after me. So yes, <laughs> yeah, they named him General Moreau, which has actually. Dr. Finance, it has other people assuming that I really am a general or that I was a general at some point. And uh, no, that's that's something Michael Bay wanted to do as a a nod, a thank you to me. And I just thought, Michael, that is too cool for school, man, that you wanted to do that.
0: So Uh, and and, uh, uh, Glenn, if you don't mind, I just want to tell a little bit more. So, folks, check this out. He was uh, Wayne Lowry on the uh, Netflix original series Bloodline. Um, but just just the main thing I thought was really cool, and we're going to talk about this today. But if you just look at all the movies he's been through, uh, from uh, been in or involved in some shape and form, from X Men to uh, Star Trek, I'm just scamming scam, uh, scam through here. Black Hawk Down. Wow, my That's favorite a- movie of my entire career. That's you were in Black Hawk Down. What, what I have you- a
1: very prominent role in Black Hawk Down. I played Colonel Tom Matthews. In the film, and um, obviously it's a story of a true, true story of an actual mission. And so Colonel Tom was there with us as our tech advisor. And you talk about something that could be viewed as daunting is when you're playing the actual man who is standing right in front of you. That's that's a big assignment, you know, and so he would go up in the air with us in the helicopters. And I cared about one review more than anyone's, and that was Colonel Tom's. So if at the end of the scene he went just like that and just gave you a thumbs up, it's like, well, who else's opinion do I care about? This is the actual guy who was there on that
0: mission in Mogadishu. Wow. That's incredible. All, all, all right. Uh, so, Glenn, we've got a lot to cover today. Let's let's start from the beginning. Uh, where were you originally from? If you want to tell us about uh, your early years, maybe the first 10 years or so.
1: Yeah. You know what? Let's take it from conception. Um, <laughs> okay. i actually i actually know where i was conceived i was conceived in in houston texas but i was born in dallas i've um, never heard anybody say that to me By the way, let's what take let's it. take it from conception yeah. well you know you get a little different cup of tea when you when you ask me to be your guest uh, but i was born in uh, 1959 in dallas which makes me 63 years old if you do the math And uh, was raised here until I was 18. Um, I had something occur right before my fifth birthday, which was uh, a big event that I remember vividly. I remember everything about the day, but I was actually at the parade where John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And I saw Kennedy about 25 minutes, President Kennedy and uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, as the motorcade drove by. And it was probably about 15 feet uh, away, right around 15 feet away from where I was standing. So I had a phenomenal view. And of course, that's before all hell broke loose. But um, one of the things I learned that day as a little boy is how everything can go from being completely fine to the polar opposite on a dime, that that can be. And I don't think that lesson was... I don't think it came my way to produce a condition of paranoia, but rather to produce produce a condition of celebration of this moment that is going so well, because who knows how long it will last. It may last a very long time, but it's wonderful now. And so being here with you in this moment is wonderful now. And I'm glad to be here. And there's nowhere else I am other than right here. And um you and I both have an opportunity to be any one of a number of places, an incalculable number of places, but we're here with each other. And um, that was a big event in my early life. My mother and father divorced when I was three, and my mother remarried. She was the first person, the only person I believe to this date that ever had the courage to get a divorce. And I don't just say she's the only one that got a divorce. It took courage because divorce was heavily frowned upon in her southern baptist upbringing and so even the couples in her family that were not <clears throat> necessarily the poster children <clears throat> for wellness or happiness or celebration they stayed together as though that was the bottom line you know we can throw pots and pans at each other's heads but as long as we stay together you know and and my mom didn't feel that way my mom was in a situation that she esteemed to be both unhealthy and over with, and so she put an official end to it, and I'm proud of her for that. I miss being raised by the two people that came together to form me. That would have been something that, uh, in a leave-it-to-beaver world, would have been lovely, but that's not the way it worked out, and I'm not into resisting what is. I think that's uh, a root cause for why we get into Problems in life is resisting that which is. This is an old Buddhist belief resisting that which is. Understand, here's what's going on, and how can we work with it in a cooperative and synchronistic way to create the most favorable outcome? So when my mom remarried, she married a Jewish man, which was as unpopular in her family as the divorce was. Again, this goes back in time. This is all the way back in 1965. She divorced in 62, got remarried in 65. And Dallas, Texas, in 1965, was not known for its open-mindedness, nor were a lot of places in this country. And so I was raised uh, within the Jewish religion, per my stepfather's wishes. I was never asked if it was what I wanted, which is why I am now so compassionate in my adult life, because I don't believe you should ever impose your belief systems on anybody. I think that people should be asked how they feel. If they express interest and they want to know, then you can share uh, your faith with them, your good news, whatever. But a lot of things were issued to me. Uh, my religion was issued to me. My last name was issued to me without asking. I'm not bitter about it. I'm simply citing truthful moments in my life where I did as I was told.
0: Were and you born uh, Glenn Morshow?
1: No, I was born Glengrove Grove Bennett. Oh. I didn't know that. Glenn Grove Bennett. Uh are you getting that beep sound that just came in?
0: I heard it from your end. Oh, you heard it from my end? Yeah. I, so I, I'm muted because I got people doing construction next door to me. So I apologize. Ah, got it. Okay. Yeah. Well,
1: um, I'm just wondering if that is email coming in. And if so, I wanna I wanna get rid of that, but um hopefully it won't be all All right right. so i'll i will pick this story up and you can edit however you wish we had a little audio glitch on my end sorry about that
0: yeah no Um, worries actually i don't even edit i let it go well that's (laughs) fine i mean it's just a human moment right um but when my uh
1: you know when i was raised in a you will do what you're told universe um that was very painful And I don't need any counseling over it. I don't need any help. I don't need anyone to tell me how sorry they are that that happened. Um, I'm convinced it was all part of what I refer to as my Earth School curriculum. And I've been a speaker for a very long time. So these things occurred to me to give me a chance to observe life, find out what I do support, what does make sense, what does feel loving, and what doesn't and clock how I feel about those two things, to replicate the things that feel good and allow those to show up in my behavior and the things that did not feel good to be on the receiving end of, to then make sure, make damn sure that I don't ever put anyone on the receiving end of the same feeling. And in that sense, it's been helpful. So I'm I'm really appreciative of the speed bumps That I have encountered in my own life because I really believe that at the end of the day, they were all designed to hone and shape and refine my understandings of life so that I would grow up to be a very love centric, heart centric, and compassion centric human being, which I am today. So I'm grateful for that. Um, I got into doing theater when I was 12 years old. And I'm just gonna set the stage now very quickly. I went to see a play uh, called uh, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens at the Dallas Theater Center. And uh, I was 11, and my mom took me there along with my brother Brian to um, see some theater and to be uh, exposed to, I believe the term she used at that time was culture. <laughs> we got, we're going to get some culture
0: today. This is great. We've got two guys with two different accents here today, you know?
1: Well, you know that's (laughs) just just the way it it was. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. About everybody in my family sounds just like this, right? And they talk out of the side of their mouths. It's just—I mean—that's the deal here in Texas. And I don't sound uh, quite that way, you know. But um, but anyway, we went to uh, the theater that day, and that day changed the entire trajectory of my life. Which brings me to the next point is. You can identify any moment, at any time, anywhere, as being a profound, life-changing moment. And I'm not joking, Dr. Finance, when I say that that moment can occur in the most unusual place up to and including the toilet. I really mean that. You could be sitting on the toilet when an epiphany occurs to you, and you chew on it for a moment in your mind, And you realize I am a changed man as a result of the thought that just ran through me. And you get up and you're forever different. Maybe it happens in the shower. Maybe it happens in the form of a dream while you're asleep and you wake up restored, renewed, and optimistic with a brand new set of ideas and clarity. Um, Life is an amazing mechanism. And so I went to this play and when the curtain came up shortly after the curtain, uh, came up there was a young lady a girl who I went to school with it was in the play her name was Debbie Siegel and I had no idea she was in this play until Debbie walked out on stage and I went wow and everyone on stage looked like they were having so much fun they were having a better time frankly than I was in my life and I wanted to be up there that was my feeling and so at the intermission I went and tugged at my mom's uh, dress and I said um, I said, what what could I do to, uh, to be a part of this? Do you know anything about it? And, and thankfully, I have a very supportive mom. Had one then and still have one today. She's still alive. She'll be 85 next month. And my mom said, um, let me look into it. And she did. She took action and enrolled me in classes. And brother, I took to it like a duck to water. I really found my tribe. And uh, started training at 11 and was uh, there for four years at that theater until uh, they received a phone call from a talent agency here in Dallas that was casting for a national television commercial. And um, let me wrap this up to say that I attended that audition and booked the very first thing I had ever auditioned for. And when I, this was the first time I'd ever been paid to act. And when I got a paycheck for it, I discovered that I liked it even more. Yeah, imagine that, right? That now it's been monetized. And then somebody said, well, are you aware of residuals? And I went, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and they said, residuals. I said, what, what's that? And they said, well, that's when they pay you again in a few months. So six months down the road, I got a sizable paycheck for a job I had already been paid for. And I liked that more than the original pay. <laughs> I thought, oh, this works for me. And I uh, started doing a bunch of commercials, and then later that year, which was 1975, uh, a movie came through town called Drive-In, and they auditioned uh, actors in Dallas, Houston, and Austin, those three cities. And the people from San Antonio came up to the Austin auditions because they're pretty close by. And uh, it seemed like everybody and his brother auditioned for this movie, and I wound up with the lead in the film having never been in a movie with a series of like four callbacks. And then finally the director said to me, as I was walking out of the room, it's a moment in my life. I'll never forget. He looked over and he said, Hey Glenn, he was from New York and he sounded like this. (laughs) And he said, Hey Glenn. And I looked and he said, I'll see you on the set. I'm sorry. What? (laughs) He said, I'll see you on the set. And. I felt like I had just won the lottery. And it brings tears up for me because it is such a such a magical moment to have this man give me information that would change my life that here I am at age 63 and I'm still under the influence of that line said to me that day I'll see you on the set. So the first National commercial I ever read for, I booked, and the first movie I ever read for, I booked, which created within me an expectation consciousness of winning. I expect to win when I play. And it's not a hope, wish, or a want. And this is why I'm dedicated to it in my life, to help other people understand. Dr. Deepak Chopra words it this way. And I have this committed to memory because I thought it was one of the most beautiful things ever. He said, "Every molecule of our beingness eavesdrops upon the the uh, eavesdrops upon our expectancy." So I want to say that again. Every molecule of our beingness eavesdrops upon our expectancy. It eavesdrops on it. So the question becomes, what is your expectancy? I expect good things to come out of me. And I teach my students this phrase, things go well for me. Now, they don't uniquely go well for me. They go well for you. They go well for a lot of people. And what's interesting is that when we make such a declaration of simply saying things go well for me, that doesn't mean there won't be speed bumps. That doesn't mean there won't be heartache. That doesn't mean there won't be blood sometimes, the metaphorical equivalent of blood. Hopefully it won't literally involve the loss of blood, but there may be some blood, some sweat, and some tears, and there may be some real pain during a particular chapter, which does not mean that life isn't working out for me. Even in the midst of hardship, life is still busy doing what it does, and I'm grateful to be here. So when I would go on auditions, I, I never had the attitude of, oh, I hope they like me, or I hope they think my acting is good enough to include me on in the team. It was a matter of, I do what I do well, I do what I do believably, and I'm going to bring this gift to them and let them decide what they wish to do with it. So that's where I set on course at age 16, and then I toured for the movie the following year, and that's what took me to Los Angeles when I was 18 years old. I had a lead in a movie that was playing all over the country at the time, and um, I didn't have exactly a traditional entrance to L.A. Because I went right into town and started shaking hands and meeting people, and and, um, and I lived in L.A. for 37 years. Came back, and married my high school sweetheart. We had children a year and a half later, so we were very young parents. We got married at 19 and 18, and we had our kids a month before my 20th, 21st birthday. So my son is now 42. Uh, my daughter just turned 40 on December 31st. And um, we we are a very blessed family, and I'm grateful that I only do what I love. I don't complain about my job. I love my job. I travel all over the world. And more than anything, I love being a professional speaker, more than being an actor. And I still enjoy being an actor. I'm a director. I have my own studio. I direct actors, as you know. I direct them all day, Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, When I say all day, I'm talking about 12 hours. I sit down at 1130 in the morning and I go until midnight. I do that on Monday and Tuesday. And if I'm asked to be in a series or a movie, then I have someone to cover those shifts for me. But if I'm not physically on a set, I am teaching and loving it. It is my soul's nourishment to teach. It's my nature. So I think I've been pretty thorough in that story. And so here I am all these years later. Now, we moved back to the very city this all started in. Dallas, not because we were done with LA, but because my mother-in-law was dying at the time in 2012. And they gave her less than a year. Uh, they, They thought that she probably would not make it the full year. And when we got that prognosis, my wife said to me, honey, I need to stay. I said, of course you do. With no thought, none whatsoever. Immediate support. Of course you do. And I understood that means she would be quitting her job. Well, that's the way the cards have been dealt. I don't want you to miss even a moment of time left with your mother. That's irreplaceable time. You'll never get it back once she's gone. So let's have you be here in Dallas and I will commute back and forth. And it turns out that the phone never stopped ringing. So there wasn't much point in commuting except to actually work. I didn't need to live in LA anymore. I had firmly established myself. And so we bought a home here in Dallas and we never went back. We thought we would be here maybe a year, possibly more had her mom lasted longer, but uh, five weeks after she passed, her dad passed five weeks later, lost her mom and dad back to back. Wow. And then we decided that, um, sorry to hear that. We were, well, you know, again, our job is to roll with the punches and we decided that Dallas was wonderful. And since my wife grew up here, too, she loved being back here as much as I did. And I thought, well, if we don't need to physically be in L.A., uh, let's set up camp here. So here we are 10 years later. And we're happy. I love that we're right in the middle of the country so I can go to either coast in three hours. And life's good, brother. And look, and I'm, I'm here with you. You know, it's pretty good. Pretty good stuff.
0: Glenn, I appreciate this story um, i want i want to dive into some aspects of what you talked about now we'll, we'll, let's go back to the beginning there's one thing i can't overlook sure so you must have been four years old at that parade uh to watch jFk uh get assassinated Where, did you did you see this whole thing and if you could talk a little bit more about that what what kind of effect that would have would have had on on some on everyone really that was there
1: yeah, it was four months before my fifth birthday. Uh, I could, It's interesting. I couldn't tell you much about that year, but I could tell you a lot about two days of that year. And one of them was the day I broke my leg, which nobody really cares to hear that story. But because of the impact of the day, I remember that day and everything about it. And I certainly remember the day JFK was assassinated. So we... We got up early that morning. I was attending Shamrock Nursery School, and my entire nursery school walked down to an area of Dallas called Lee Park, which is on Turtle Creek Boulevard. And we went down at the uh, foot of the statue of Robert E. Lee, which is no longer there. When they went on this huge statue removal campaign a couple of years ago in our uh, country and knocked down all these old Civil War statues, Uh, the Robert E. Lee statue was one that uh, bit the dust. But um, at the foot of that statue, I was probably 30 feet from the statue, but only about 15 feet away from the edge of the curb where the motorcade came by moving left to right down uh, Turtle Creek Boulevard. And I've been kind of a student of the assassination ever since. And so the motorcade was moving at 11 miles per hour, which is not very fast and gives you a really good look. Well, there was no drama surrounding that moment at all. That was a happy moment in the parade. I remember looking at what Jackie was wearing and um, that beautiful pink outfit and the pillbox hat that she was wearing. And, um, and the you know, President Kennedy wouldn't look at us and he kept looking straight forward. And then at the very last minute, and I'll do it this way, he looked back and went like this and he looked back. And we, of course, all felt like he was looking directly at us, but he turned and looked at our group. And that was the frozen image in my mind. But that was a happy moment. And then it was about 30, 25 to 30 minutes later when all hell broke loose in downtown Dallas. And then parents came, uh, the mothers mostly bawling. Everybody was crying because by that time he had been pronounced deceased. And everyone was picked up from the nursery school. And we all uh, unplugged the day very early. uh, And everybody went home. Uh, tremendously sad. I remember that um, very well. And my father was uh, buddies with Jack Ruby. Uh, his name was Jack Rubinstein, who was out of Chicago. And Jack Ruby, of course, if you know, and anyone who studied the assassination knows that Jack Ruby is the gentleman who walked into the Dallas jail and gunned down Lee Harvey Oswald two days later on Sunday when he was being transferred to a different jail. Uh, and he was able to do that because he ran a club in Dallas called the Carousel Club, and all the police knew him, and and so they wouldn't think anything of it. They all were customers of his. He was well-respected in the community, but uh, it, was, it was a very sad day for our world, and especially for our nation in this city. And for years, Dallas was tarnished with the image of the assassination until, um, you know, until... Uh, the Dallas Cowboys helped uh, put the city back on the map, as did, believe it or not, as shallow as this may seem, the series Dallas. The TV <laughs> series Dallas on CBS made Dallas an okay place again, even a city worth celebrating. So between the Cowboys and the series and exposure to really good people, good Southern hospitality, I think it finally occurred to our world that the city of Dallas did not kill the president. but that. Uh, that was the decision of some people. It was not the city that did it. Any more than things that happen in your city are, is the city itself responsible for. But sometimes, you know, people take actions and, and the city is found guilty by association or even the country is found guilty by association. And I certainly didn't get on this to talk uh, politics or anything. But yeah, it was a big day, a very, very big day in my life. And I've had a chance to do a movie about it. Uh, which was called parkland anyone who wants to look up that movie um, i did that movie several years ago with paul giamatti and it's interesting it was filmed here in parkland is the name of the hospital where kennedy was rushed to uh where he was pronounced dead and it's a really well
0: done movie that tells the story accurately glenn did you did you actually watch him get shot or no 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 no
1: No, as i said it was 25 to 30 minutes later in the parade route. So no, thank God. Thank God I didn't see
0: that. Okay. Yeah, because that would have been a totally different uh oh, I mean that that just shows yeah. though. Like you remember all this and you didn't even see that. I mean, I mean, imagine like how many people were there and how many actually saw it. Those people will never forget this the rest of their life. They're changed forever. That's like, correct. World always, if you talk like I even here in Philadelphia, I, I can talk to any. I could have interviewed anyone in my family above, you know, that was there, that was living on that time frame. They sure. could always tell me where they were that day. But imagine if, if someone's actually there, I mean, you got to witness history. It's, it's-
1: well, what about all the people that were right there at 9-11?
0: Yeah. You know, I mean,
1: it's, it's huge and, and life altering to have stood there and watched it with your own eyes and watched those buildings fall and hear the screams. And I mean, it would have been horrific. So much trauma. You know, and to that end, there is something to be said, and it's not a depressing thought. I think it's a, it's just a, a, it's an area where, where we can grow our compassion is that the number one thing that links us all together, you can say, well, it's love. That's, That's, that's true. But there are people who really don't know love. There are those, do you have love in your life? No, they would give you that answer. But I will tell you, as a speaker, I've surveyed a number of audiences, and if you ask an audience, no matter how large the audience is, it can be 50 people, it can be 5,000 people. You ask that audience, have you ever been in pain? Raise your hand if you've ever been in pain. Everybody in the audience raises their hand. Everybody. Whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. Pain is inherent with being human. So... This is one of the reasons I'm really nice to people because you never know what they're dealing with. Mm. You don't know what's going on underneath their coat of armor or their big smile or their fancy title or their big car or their, their fat bank account, whatever. You never know what's lurking underneath that. So I think great life instruction is just be nice.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Um, so Glenn, that's a great point. And, and there's a lot of questions the questions i have are going to touch on different parts of your sure. life um we're going to go different directions but one one thing that um i want to talk about let's, let's move chronologically forward so did you have a lot of jobs in your in your teens like any entrepreneur jobs or you basically went straight to acting and that was it were oh, I had, any
1: that stuff? I had all the fun jobs. I was a paper boy. <laughs> you bet I was. And I was a paper boy who was not thrilled about getting up, especially in the winters, and going out and throwing the morning paper. Right. Um, my job, fortunately, was uh, throwing the Dow. It was, we had two papers in Dallas at the time. There's only one now. The other one is defunct. But we have a paper called the Dallas Morning News. And I, did not uh, throw that route. I was a Dallas Times-Herald employee, and that was the afternoon paper because that schedule worked way better for me. I could do it after school and go on my bicycle and left and right, you know, reach into the bag and throw it in. It's, it's It was great. And, and I worked for a – what did I work at? I worked for a pizza company. Uh, I worked as a landscaper for a church. I moved to Hollywood and had a job for Togo's, which made sub sandwiches long before we ever heard of a Jersey Mike's or a Subway. Subway didn't didn't even exist then. But they had a California company called Togo's, which is like two goes, but nobody called it two goes. It was called Togo's. <laughs> and uh, then I framed pictures with an organization. Uh, I framed their paintings, uh, piecemealing work. And then I worked as a busboy in a restaurant and i worked as a waiter in two restaurants and as their dj eventually in one of those two restaurants those were all of my i don't call them real world jobs because i consider acting to be a real world job but those were those were jobs that i did to support my young family we had our kids so young that you know we i had acting work but it wasn't full time yet and so there i was in my early 20s and i've got two children by the time i'm 24 years old And we had to eat. And so we both had regular jobs. And as the years went on, by the time I was 28, acting was mostly full-time. It took me about 10 years to firmly establish myself in Los Angeles. And then when I was 32, I did a movie you may remember called Under Siege with Steven Seagal and Tommy Lee Jones. And that is the film that concretized my career. That film changed my life. And I haven't stopped working consistently since that film was released, which was in the fall of
0: 1992. Why? So what, was, hap- what happened? What re- happened that that put you? Over it the was top?
1: a very it was a very popular film, and it was a feature film that a lot of money was spent on. And of course, what happens if a film is popular? It doesn't matter that you did a movie; it really has everything to do with how well that film fared. Mm-hmm. So, if the film fared well, that means a lot of people saw it. It generated a lot of box office. I made plenty of money on it, but that was not the big deal. The big deal was the loss of anonymity, which is your goal as an actor. Your goal is to lose your anonymity to where you walk down the street and people go, hey, man, under siege. I love that movie. You know, I really enjoyed what you did there. And that's once that starts happening, you really don't look back. If you're good and you're kind, when you work on shows, people want to rehire you. So that I will forever be grateful to Steven Seagal and to Andrew Davis, <laughs> excuse me, who directed that movie, and um, because it did change my life. And, of course, the ultimate slam dunk was uh, several years later, in fact, nine years later, in 2001, when I started doing the TV series 24, because that was an iconic character who was highly principled. And people really appreciated um, that show. For many people, that was their favorite show. And we had millions and millions of people that watched it every Monday night on Fox television. So-
0: uh, you enjoy being famous? What are the pros and cons of it?
1: Well, um, my level of fame is desirable. It's very desirable because it's non-intrusive, meaning I'm an old character actor fart, right? That's who I am. And (coughs) excuse me, the media doesn't care about folks like me. So TMZ is not waiting <laughs> on my doorstep to see what I'm wearing. <laughs> Excuse me. I got to drink some water. I'm oh, yeah, probably going to be wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Yeah. Okay. So um, as I was saying, TMZ does not, they don't care about a 63 year old character actor. They don't, they don't care. Uh, I have been stopped by TMZ one time in my life. It was at Los Angeles International Airport, and I had just arrived from uh, Miami. I don't know how they get this information. (laughs) I I swear, I don't, because I don't use a publicist. So what I suppose is that they have representatives all over the country. This is what I surmise. I have surmised that somebody in Miami made a phone call and said, hey, the dude from, uh, from Bloodline just got on the plane. And they probably didn't even know my name. They probably said the dude from Bloodline, the drug lord, because I played the drug lord in the show. The drug lord from Bloodline just got on a flight to Los Angeles. He'll be there at such and such a time. See, the only thing that makes sense, because as soon as I landed, they were there to greet me and wanted to know all about Bloodline. And and, uh, did I live in L.A.? And how long was I there for? And did you just get finished filming? And what was that like? And Andy Garcia was on the same flight. Wow. Uh, and so they had two teams, one that was interviewing Andy and the other team that was interviewing me there at the luggage rack. And I i don't get it. I mean, I don't get what the fascination is, but um, the character actors fly just underneath the radar. And so we work all the time and people come up and 50% of the time they know your name. Usually uh, probably 99% of the time they are very nice. And they just come up and say, I just really wanted to tell you how much my wife and I loved watching 24 or, and, and sometimes it can be years later. I mean, we finished filming 24 in 2009 and they're walking up and going, I want to tell you that was my all-time favorite show. And I hear that several times a week still today. So it's long lasting and courtesy of reruns. uh, People are less likely to forget about you because they may have just seen your show last week, even though it's been off the air for a long time. So a character actor's life is a really good life. And uh, I don't have the magazine covers. I don't have the talk shows. I don't have the headache of, uh, of fame. What I have are nice people that come up to me and say, I really
0: appreciate your work. Now, if you, if you reach the level of like the rock, would you be comfortable with that kind of fame?
1: I'll answer that when I get there, (laughs) but
0: I see that as highly
1: unlikely, right? Because I've, I've kind of achieved the things I wanted to achieve already and I'm still working consistently. Last year was the best year I've ever had, including all the years I was on 24 last year. I was doing three different leads in television series all at the same time, the greatest year of my life, professionally speaking, it was incredible. So, um, But I'm sure Dwayne the Rock Johnson is doing his thing and enjoying his life. I enjoy my life, and I find myself not wanting for anything. I don't define myself by the watch I wear. I don't need to own a plane or a helicopter to be of significance. And people who have their own plane or helicopter, God bless them. That's great. If it's important to them, it's not important to me. What is important to me is my relationship. What is important to me is my love of life. What is important to me are my kids, my mom, and certainly my friends, and my school. My school means everything to me, Dr. Finance. My acting school is my soul's work. Is that in Dallas? It is. Well, now, it, we don't really say it's in Dallas. I teach it from here. I teach it from this very spot. This wow. is what my weekly backdrop looks like. But uh, it's online now. And when we started, it was in person. And then COVID came along and sort of turned our world upside down. And because of COVID, we had to shut down our business and I didn't want to lose the school. So I started coaching online and now it's so successful because we don't have any restrictions, geographically speaking. So um, we're really elated. I mean, it's one of those weird blessings that came about as a result of COVID because I can assure you, I would never become an online coach, but life said, yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. This is what's going to happen because you're going to lose your building. And now we have people from seven foreign countries and people from all over the United States. We're the most successful we've ever been. And um, it's it's really terrific to be able to teach online. I love it. I would prefer to teach online versus live.
0: So, Glenn, I don't know if you know much about me, but I, how much you know about me. But uh, I was an online professor. So most people know me as a university professor but I was a professor on for 10 years but I was an online professor. So oh
1: wow. And so this is all obviously
0: pre-covid. 2008 when everybody they looked at me like, "Wouldn't you be bored by yourself teaching?" Like what they looked down on me for doing that because no one did that. And they're yeah, like, you know? "Why would you want to stay by yourself?" I'm like, "Look, it's okay. I, you know, I can raise my family and I have all this time for myself." And so now now look how the world changed in just what? 15 years. And like you, know, so, yeah, I, you were I, ahead of your
1: time, brother.
0: <laughs> and before that was distance learning. So a lot of my degrees and certifications I got from, uh, they called it distance learning, where the books would come in the mail. Like my master's degree, I actually earned it through American College. They, they sent me the books. This was one of the oldest distance learning um, schools in the country. They would send me the books. I would go out to an exam place, take the exam, come back, clock it in. That's how I got my master's degree right? Nice PhD. Now all of a sudden online schools come around and I I got my degree from Walden an online school. And then I started thinking, Hey, I'm already been doing this really for 10 years in the background. Uh, why don't I just teach from there? So this, this whole world just, what I just gave you really was a history of, of everything that's online. That's going on right now for the past. I love it.
1: Yeah. So, you uh, know, that it has its own advantages. Obviously, it has its own challenges. I prefer to teach, like when I'm doing my speaking engagements, Mm -hmm. I prefer that those be live. So I'm really grateful that COVID has subsided enough for the speaking universe to get uh, reignited because I've done several speaking engagements in the last few months. And man... Oh, that feels so good to get back on stage and be speaking with large audiences and uh, being able to be utilized in a difference making capacity. I love it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure, Glenn. But you know what? Here's an odd thing about teaching online that I don't think in the history of humanity has ever been experienced. I actually had to teach classes, get this, Glenn, with zero people in the room. Now, think about that for a second. In history, how many teachers have actually taught a class with no one there? That's weird, right? Right. But it was it was asynchronous, so it was recorded. So I might have had a military student at uh, you know, three in the morning in Afghanistan listening. So I had to teach it as if people were there, but there was nobody there. So it was really awkward to do. So was- don't you see the beauty
1: in that though? The <laughs> beauty in that though, think if you think about it, uh huh. You've I know you've heard the adage, build it and they will come. Right. Right. So in this case, it's the same principle. It's teach it and they will learn. So you're teaching it from a visionary place of I'm going to do this now where there isn't anybody. But I know that with it being recorded, there will be people watching it. So I'm going to greet these people in advance before they're even there. And they will show up. So I'm teaching with the vision of them being there in mind, even though they're not there in that moment. Um, That's a great way to bolster your faith in life and really becoming a visionary. You have to have a template in order to create your dream. And you certainly had a template by knowing, as you said, someone in Afghanistan may very well be watching this tomorrow night. So I need to be present for that person right here looking at them right now. That's great coaching for you.
0: Mm. I agree, Glenn. Well, enough about me though. (laughs) I just wanted a quick interjection. I I wanted to uh, talk about something really cool, Glenn. So this, this could be very helpful. Okay. So to all aspiring actors and actresses out there, what you said before in your story cannot be overlooked. You talked about in your twenties, you had kids, you're doing all these odd jobs and you're acting at the same time. It took you 10 years to get your big break, Mm -hmm. 10 years of grinding it out with all these other jobs in addition, in addition to focusing. And um, I think this is an important connecting link between what I speak about and your world as a specialty money, right? Mm -hmm. So acting for, for actors and actresses that want to become to the level where you got and beyond, what what advice would you give them, and, and if you can, maybe if you can zone in on a story from that 10-year period to elaborate, what advice would you give them on if they're looking ahead, the type of obstacles, not to take away hope from them, but just to let them know for real, this is what you're going to have to go through. This is what you're going to have to fi- figure out a way to get through in order to get to that other side in terms of money, in terms of struggling every day. And, and keeping keeping uh, the vision on looking forward. Like any thoughts about that relating to Oh those-
1: ab- absolutely. And, and please understand that we are so deep in my comfort zone right now with all of this. I talk about it with the greatest of ease because frankly, I've done it a bunch for a long time. I've been talking about these very things. So when when you use the expression 10 years to make it, I want you to realize that it's certainly important for everyone to understand that this was not without what I refer to as morsels of encouragement. If I had had no morsels of encouragement along the way, I might have packed it in. I don't know. I can't say because it didn't go that way. So I was having wins along the way that told me, hey, this is working. This condition is growing. Things are getting better and better and bigger and I was earning more, and I was being hired more often as an actor each year. Now, primary in that was my attitude about work, meaning that when I was waiting tables, I remember working around a lot of people. I don't have a polite word. to. Well, I will. I'll use a polite word and say they were complaining. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say bitching all the time and bitching is a more vivid word so it really was more bitching than complaining but the point is they were complaining about you know having to wait tables I don't know if it was a self-esteem issue that they thought they were beyond that they were too good for it Uh, this is not what I moved to Los Angeles to do so maybe it was adversely affecting their pride and I never went through any of that and the reason I didn't is because I never saw my job as the enemy Your job is not the enemy. You said, what would I say to people? Here's what I would look them in the eye and say, your job that you have currently is not your enemy. If it's putting food in your belly, it's putting a roof over your head. It's giving you heat and or air conditioning for comfort when the, you know, the temperature is adversarial outside. It's not adversarial inside. You're in a comfort zone and you're able to get on with it. What that means is that your job is your friend because it's allowing you to stay in the hunt. It is difficult, if not impossible, to stay in the hunt if you're homeless. I'm talking about as an actor. I think this applies, frankly, to any line of work, but you kind of have to get the homelessness issue resolved (laughs) first. And I don't say that lightly. I really mean it. You've got to get your financial ducks in a row so that you are available to look good and, frankly, to look alive. When I say alive, what is your aliveness quotient? How alive are you? I say this to my students all the time. The primary thing that audiences respond to, the primary thing that human beings respond to is your level of aliveness. If you are an incredibly plugged-in person, who clearly is in a synchronistic glide through life, you will be attractive to others. I'm sure there will be a handful of people who are pissed off by your joy and by your radiance, but that's not worth slowing your life down for. Most people will look and be grateful to know you. They will respond favorably to you. So I felt like, look, My job as a waiter allowed me to make enough money for my wife and I to raise our children. And she was working too. I mean, we both broke our butts, but we never complained about it because we wanted children. We wanted to raise children. We both did. And we were blessed to have a boy and a girl. So I know what it means to have a son and a daughter. So grateful to have both aspects of that. And that job taught me a lot about human interaction because. My job as a waiter, I remember, was this, to take total strangers and convert them into people who had a sense of being connected to me in no time flat. In the course of the time that they're with me, which was usually about an hour and a half, in an hour and a half, I'm going to take you from being a total stranger to someone who feels like I'm family. And you want to come back. And next time you're back, you're actually going to request my section. Right. That was that was very important to me. Is that they would feel close enough to want to be seated in my section? And what that resulted in, and I'm not being boastful, what that resulted in is one when you're there on a Monday night, which typically is the slowest night in restaurants, my section would be full on a Monday night, even though the restaurant wasn't busy. That's called relationship capital. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask right now your audience to please stop and write that down. Grab a pen. And write down the two words, relationship capital. It is arguably the most spendable currency in the world. And people say, well, we've all heard that. It's about who you know. No, it's not. It's about who knows you.
0: Mm.
1: It's not who you know. It's who knows you and, and this is a pretty big and, <laughs> and who respects you.
0: That's
1: right. So I know you and I respect you. That's why I'm here. Because of that relationship capital. So I'm generating relationship capital with people, albeit, yes, merely uh, in a restaurant environment. They're going to come back in and dine with me, but you've got to understand the principle is the same. So when you're out in the casting universe as an actor, if you think about it, my job is to walk into a room and meet a casting director. And in no time flat, here we go again in no time flat, convert them from someone who is a stranger to being someone who has a sense of kinship with me someone who feels like I'm family someone who feels like they could trust to call me in the event of a last minute casting and and I would be a really good choice for their movie or for their TV series so I discovered that they were amazingly similar and and was able to stay in it for that reason so you've got to do things that create a sense of encouragement and And when we say yes to the yearnings of our soul, I consider that to be healthy prioritization. And I got to tell you, your soul will thank you. I'm going to now act out the role of the soul. The soul looks up and goes, hey, thanks. (laughs) I really mean this. The soul looks up and goes, thank you for, for valuing me. Thank you for showing me respect. Thank you for knowing that I exist. Thank you for knowing that I have your best interest in mind. Most souls get ignored and you have not ignored me. Thank you. That's a beautiful time in a human's life. When they really prioritize their soul and they allow that soul
0: to lead the way over all else. Glenn, uh, that was beautiful, by the way. (laughs) That's why I like you, Glenn. You say things very good. Great. You have great ways of putting things that are so unique. Like most people wouldn't talk like that, but it's so powerful It's and it's right. Glenn, I, I want to just real quick um interject. Well, if quick- you
1: want listen, you know, I can do, <laughs> I can do this the whole time too. You know, we could just do a lot of nonsense and play around.
0: You actually did it really well. <laughs> Glenn. So Brad Lee uh, was on um, the podcast and, and the show. And one of the things he said that resonated with me, because I interviewed a lot of big uh, sales guys like Jeffrey Gitmer and- and uh,
1: I know Jeffrey very well. Jeffrey and I are
0: friends. Yeah, and and uh, Brad, I asked him a question. We started talking about sales and he goes, if you can master sales, you will always, and, and I believe, I'm paraphrasing. I hope I'm saying it right. But if you can master sales, you will always have either a job or income coming in. Sure. Buying. So like, based on what you just said, there, there was an interesting point that I was pulling out there You said, you know, the job, the the work was not the enemy, right? Like that, that was not the enemy. Meaning that
1: your regular job was not the enemy because it's keeping you fed
0: and it's keeping you in the hunt. Right. And, and, and another point that that you made, which ties into Brad Lee's point, right? Was that your section was full. You were working in one hour. You wanted to convert these folks. You were actually selling, right? You were kind of no question. Right. Like, so, and then you converted that. What You were in the training grounds to build your sales knowledge to understanding people so that when you got 10, 20 years later and you got your break, now you can go into the director's box and take that same skill set, which is now fine-tuned, same skill set. You would never have gotten fine tuned if you didn't practice it then to go to that director and say, listen, buddy, I'm, I'm good for this job right here because you worked on it 10 years before and didn't see the job as the enemy. I just glued it all together. What do you think? Robert? Yeah, that,
1: uh, you're spot on with that. You know, and and here's the deal: anyone who doesn't believe that, if you're bad mouthing a job, whatever job it is you currently have, bad mouth that, and let's instead go without any income, and let's see how long you last with no income at all. So here's the problem: here's why your job is not the enemy. Your job is not the enemy while you're you're also saying yes to the yearnings of your soul, which is your dream of whatever. Now. I, I do want to say something about the word pursuit. You've heard me talk about this on Clubhouse. Uh, I do not believe in pursuing your dreams. And I mean that. And I'm going to explain why, because it's an important lesson for people to learn. I think it's one of the worst words that people can use with regard to their dreams. And they say, you know, you going out there to Hollywood back in 1977. Only down here, we pronounce it with a B. It's 70, 77, seven. Is that, are you smiling right now? I'm wondering. Are you smiling? That's how we say it. And so hysterical. in 1977, <laughs> uh, there were a whole bunch of people that said to me, "Hey, Glenn," and Glenn is a two syllable name here in Texas. Glenn, hey, Glenn, are you uh, are you going out there to California? Are you going to Hollywood, man, to pursue your dream? And I said, even at eighteen, I said, no, I'm going there to have it. I'm not going there to pursue it. I'm going there to have it. And I want to make that distinction so that it doesn't just sound like foo-foo-woo-woo, wordplay. Oh, what's the difference? More shower. Pursue it. Have it. What's the difference? How about this? The difference is huge. It's huge. So here's my question to you, anyone here that's listening. And it's not a question to you, Dr. Finance, because you've heard me say this before. But have you ever picked up the phone? I know the answer is no. I know in advance the answer is no. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. Have you ever picked up the phone and called someone and said, listen, I'm free Saturday night. Would you like to pursue dinner? And I hope you're laughing right now as you hear that, because no one has ever done that. No one has said, would you like to pursue dinner? So I started considering this at age 18. Why do we not use the word pursue with regard to dinner? And here's what I came up with. And I came up with it when I was 18. And here I am at 63, still feeling exactly the same way that I landed upon the truth at that time and it hasn't changed. So, and truth doesn't tend to fluctuate, truth is truth. So, what I came up with is that the reason we don't use the word pursue with regard to dinner is because we are 100% certain that dinner is haveable. So, when you say, Would you like to have dinner? It's because in my mind, I know I'm going to be having dinner. Would you like to have it with me? Right? So the only way I won't have dinner between now and tonight is if I'm not here tonight, meaning I'm not in the world anymore. If I'm in the world, I will have dinner tonight. And I make no assumptions because we don't know how long we will be here in this world. But the point is, haven't you always had dinner if you wanted to have dinner? I'm asking you that. Haven't you always had dinner if you wanted to have dinner? Dr. Finance, I'm asking you. Oh, you're asking me? I'm sorry. Yeah, you, I'm asking you. Haven't you were looking
0: you, down. I thought you were talking to the audience. No, so I'm, like I'm looking at way. where
1: your image is on my screen. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I, could look, I could look here, but here is where you are on my screen. So oh, okay. uh, maybe it'd be better if I looked here to you. But whenever you wanted dinner, you had dinner. I'll just have dinner. Exactly. Right. And, and, and every time you wanted breakfast, you had breakfast. Right. Right. I now, that's at 12 a night. I, I just do it. That, that's correct. Now, granted, that's not an option in everyone's life in poverty stricken nations. I understand it's a different set of rules. But for the audiences that I'm typically talking to, mm-hmm. whenever they've wanted a meal, they had a meal. Therefore, they, there's a very valuable lesson in this. It means mm-hmm. that they see having meals as haveable. Therefore, I would never say, would you like to pursue dinner? And I thought, wow, have you just ever woken up to something? You are seriously on to something here. So why do we say pursue a goal, but would you like to have dinner? And here is Why? We use the word pursue when a fairly substantial part of us believes we're going to fail at the very thing we're chasing, that we're going to fail at catching the thing we're chasing. So instead, we back off of our commitment to have it, and we say, well, I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to go to LA to pursue it. Well, what if that's not your thought? What if your thought is, I'm not there to pursue it, I'm there to have it? The reason that's a beautiful shift in consciousness is because that is a very different you. That's a very different you that goes out into the world to have it. And the same is true with winning in sports. I'm not there to pursue victory. I'm there to win because that's what we do. And if I were ever the coach of an NFL team, this is what I would say to to my, my guys. I would say, guys, we know how to win in this organization, which isn't a comment on what any other organization does or doesn't know how to do. I know we know how to win. I know, I know there's not a team we're not capable of beating. So as long as we engage that level of expectancy, which harkens back to what, you know, uh, Deepak Chopra said about expectancy, that that every molecule of our beingness eavesdrops on our expectancy. What are you expecting? So I didn't expect to merely pursue an acting career. I expected to have one. I don't pursue my dreams. I claim my dreams. So while someone who is not as maybe accustomed to thinking of the importance of words, I can't invite this audience enough to start dropping the typical catchphrases like pursue my dreams and instead start saying, I'm here to claim my dream. I'm here to have my dream. I'm here to have my career. I'm here to claim my vision. Uh, big difference. And it takes you out of being in that pursuit modality. And then you ask someone 15 years after they've moved to LA, um, how are you doing? Well, you know, I'm still pursuing it. And you go, well, you don't seem very happy. Well, no, there's not much going on. And I'm saying, do you remember what you said 15 years ago? You said, I want to pursue my dream. Isn't that what you're doing? You're pursuing. So as it turns out, That's not really what you wanted. You wanted to have your dream, but you bought into someone else's verbiage and you said, pursue your dream. It turns out you're not happy pursuing your dream because you've been doing 15 years worth of pursuing. Are you kind of tired of the pursuing and are you ready to start doing some having? And invariably, it gets a smile out of them and they go, boy, you got that right. I'm, I'm pretty much exhausted from all this pursuing and your minds are that powerful. You can start having, but you've got to set your mental game. You've got to set your compass on that heading, you know, and, and if you're even one degree off on a compass setting, you won't hit your destination. Compass settings are exact. When you get into the cockpit of a plane, they set that compass for Philadelphia from DFW, where I live. And if they set it one degree off, we don't wind up in Philadelphia. (laughs) Plain and simple. And the same is true with, yeah, well, same is true with with your intended trajectory with your mind. You've got to get real real clear. And when I got on the plane, I don't go to the pilots if the doors open and go, gentlemen, are we pursuing Philadelphia today? (laughs) I know you laugh, but the truth is, it's an absurd concept. And you know what? If they said, yes, we'll be pursuing that, I would get off the plane. I don't Glenn, want a pilot who talks about what we would pursue. I want a pilot who says, yes, we're going to Philadelphia this morning.
0: Glenn, uh, can you give an example just briefly uh, of what when could you possibly use pursuit? And I, I, while you were talking, I actually looked up the definition on um, uh, what Merriam-Webster says. Well, why don't we start there? Tell us
1: what it says.
0: Yeah, it's 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 like one of those words that are just so ambiguous. It gives you like five different definitions. But I think the best one that goes along we're talking about says to proceed along, right? So uh, another one is to follow in order to overtake, capture, kill, or defeat. And another one is to find or employ. Oh, medicine. that's
1: harsh. Yeah, that it's harsh. Like, what, the heck? what does
0: that got to do with anything? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here's one to find or employ measures to obtain or accomplish. So we're finding these measures. Well, why don't going back to what you're saying? I guess that's that's more palatable for me.
1: I I can I can work with that definition. Yeah, I think I think that's
0: that that works. The way people use it, you're right. The way people they don't doesn't use it in accordance with that definition. They're using it like um one day I'll do it, but there's no right. It's a, here.
1: it's a form of yeah. filing a disclaimer. It's like right. I'm not all in. It's yeah. like the person who sits by the edge of the pool dips their toe in the water and calls it swimming.
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just went for a swim today. <laughs> all right, thank thank you, Glenn. This has been a great uh, great conversation so far. We're going to get into the questions, but you want to wrap up your story, maybe next few minutes. Anything that was like that? no.
1: That was that was really the entirety of it. Is I want to encourage people to think in terms of this phrase: "I'm here to claim my dream." All right? I'm not here to pursue it. I'm here to claim it, or I'm here to have it. I'm here to have the life I dream of, not pursue the life. I'm here to have it, and it it is a next. What it is? It's a call to action. It is elevating your game. It's elevating your expectation and elevating your insistency of yourself. Because it's very tough to say that I'm ready to claim my dream unless you're ready to suit up and show up where it looks like, by God, that guy is on a serious mission. The point is, it looks different. When someone uses the language of I'm here to claim my dream, that's very different. Have you noticed this? I'm going to give you one more analogy. Have you noticed when you go into a restaurant and they take your coat from you and they give you a ticket, have you noticed they don't call it a pursuit check? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? They don't, I'm here to pursue my coat. No, I'm I'm here to get my coat back because I have a ticket for it. And it's called a what check? It's called a claim check. So it's really interesting to note that the word claim shows up again. You give someone a claim check to get your ticket, your uh, suit back. Or your coat back, your overcoat. You do not give them a pursuit uh, ticket. You give them a claim ticket. A so I don't know why more people haven't rolled that understanding over into their quest for their dream and understand. I'm here with my claim ticket. And I think in a in a seminar, if you were to hand out a bunch of physical claim tickets and say, "I want you to think in terms of this being what you hand the universe." with regard to your vision, your dream. I've got my claim ticket and I'm ready to redeem it.
0: And what that said, to... Glenn, yeah. at 63 years old, you know, you, you had started pursuing, so to speak, your dream at a younger age, but would you say you have claimed your dream at this point? And at what point did, would you officially say you actually went from pursuit? If that's even a word to claim,
1: I don't think I was ever, I, I suppose that, uh, Pursuit was never a part of what I was doing. I actually went to Los Angeles with the expectation of being a working actor. Mm-hmm. Some people could say that that's arrogant, but I will tell you that it is the very thing that fueled that dream coming true was expectancy. I expected it to go this way. It wasn't hope, wish and want. I did not expect to go to LA, give it a shot for 10 years, and then come back to Dallas and take over my father's handbag business. That was not the vision. The vision was, I'm going to LA and I'm going to do this. This is what I'm doing. And I never cared about becoming wealthy at it. I cared about doing it. So come hell or high water, no matter what the stakes are, this is what I'm here to do. How many of you are at that level of clarity? This is what I'm here to do. How many of you are that way in your marriages? This is what we're doing. I'm here. Are you?
0: What made you want to be an actor at, at such a young age? though? What was what was really pushing you that way? And it's funny because uh, you, you became a speaker and we'll talk about this. And I got a real good question for you later. Yeah. But, you know, why an actor first? And why was that such a dream of yours?
1: Well, keep in mind, I didn't know that I was going to become a speaker. So it wasn't about an actor first. It was really as an actor was the only thing. Yeah. That's that's all I wanted was to do that. And it's because early on I took to it like a duck to water and i realized that what i was doing up here on stage now this is before it ever turned into film and tv i realized that what i was doing on stage was having a tremendous effect on the people that were there in the audience tremendous effect i heard laughter when we were doing comedies i also saw tears when we were doing dramas and i thought wow that's that's really powerful and it's a hell of a responsibility It's a beautiful responsibility, but it's a hell of a responsibility that you can determine largely the experience someone is having when they listen to you, that you can facilitate. You're not making anyone feel something, but you are facilitating that to feel joy, to feel hopeful, to feel encouraged, to feel alive, to feel filled with love, to feel compassionate, to feel reflective. to feel connected and all of those you've been a facilitator of that look you facilitate every friday the truth is you facilitate every day of your life but i get to hear you facilitating every friday and it's one of the things you do best so i found that to be uh highly attractive that i could be assisting someone in the facilitation of experiencing a feeling you know with regard to feelings brother a lot of people are seriously blocked.
0: <laughs>
1: and I mean, seriously blocked, unable to say things like, I love you. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a big deal for some people. I, I can look right into the camera and say, I love you with the greatest of ease. That doesn't make me special. What it does make me is free. I'm free. Thank you, God, that I am free to be able to say, I love you. Or how about this one? I screwed up and I'm sorry. I would like the opportunity to give you a better version of me because, as it turns out, the way I behaved a week ago, not my best version of me. And I humbly apologize. That apology also comes with ease because I'm free, Mm. I'm not hung up about those kinds of things. Um, And being an actor is what gave me that freedom to realize I'm always a choice and I can choose where I want to be emotionally. And it's been, a, it's been a lifesaver. And then, you know, 38 years ago, I started coaching actors. And while coaching them, it took me to some big stages. And one of those stages was in Houston, about 250 miles down the road from here. And a good old boy walked over. He really sauntered over to me and said, he said, hey, man, my granddaughter told me if you were ever anywhere near Houston, that I ought to come hear you speak. And as you can see, I have done that. And that's the pause he took. He said, As you can see, I have done that. And I said, That's the longest pause I've ever seen anybody <laughs> make in my life. He said, Well, sorry about that. He said, But, uh, you know, When I when I came here tonight, I wondered why my granddaughter had asked me to come here because I'm not an actor, but uh, she wanted me to hear you speak. And son, I got to tell you, you were not on that stage tonight talking about acting at all. You were talking primarily about love, about loyalty and purpose. You were talking about backbone. You were talking about strategy. You talked about having fun more than anyone I've ever heard in my life. And I was wondering, and he opened his jacket, and he said, I'm wondering if you might want to come speak to my people at Exxon. And that moment was the birth of me being a speaker in corporate America. Wow. And everything changed. Again, on a dime, because I was out there in life doing what I love, and somebody saw it and appreciated it. And I said, well, the answer is yes, but tell me, how would you like me to modify that talk? He said, I don't want you to change anything. You do what you did on that stage tonight, and they're going to scoop your butt up like good ice cream. That's what he told me. They're going to scoop your butt up like good ice cream. So uh, now I'm represented by a speaker bureau, and I'm very happy about that. I speak to Fortune 500 companies a lot, and I'm always speaking on the subject of love and aliveness. So I'm grateful for that.
0: That's incredible, Glenn. I, I just want to, um, before I get into the question, one last point I want to add to that was, so Hall of Fame speaker, Steve Rizzo, who's a friend of Jeffrey.
1: And you know, I know Steve, or did yeah. you know that?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think because you were on the stage from that time. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, his story's incredible because he was almost, a f- he was a famous comedian, but he was almost at the level, of the highest level. And he was about- Yeah, to make- he worked with
1: Rodney Dangerfield a yeah. bunch.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had Eddie Murphy uh, opening up for him. I mean, people like that. So he, he switched into speaking- because he had this epiphany at the last moment and got on a plane and went back and they thought he was crazy because he realized kind of what you were saying. It's like he saw the effect he was having on people, mm-hmm. but he and to paraphrase his words, he knew it was only temporary like acting. It's te- it's a temporary effect. Correct. But he, he wanted a more permanent effect. And that's why he realized that speaking was the way, because once you speak to the soul, They'll never forget you if you connect right. And you I thought that, that was such a crazy story, and it ties into a lot about you because you, you as an actor, I think at some point you transitioned to be a speaker. The same way he transitioned from a comedian to a speaker, probably for similar reasons. You, just, um, you found that
1: identical reasons. And you know, Steve's been in my car. You got to be special to wind up in my car, right? We were at a an event together with Craig Deswalt and Ken Walls. And uh, it was here in Dallas a few, it was only a few months ago. And we got in the car and rode over and got a bite to eat together. And I love Steve's story and he's a good dude. And we are true soul brothers. Um, I, I connected with him on so many levels and yeah, that's true. That's, um, that's how I feel about acting. Let me add it by modifying this. The only difference is stand up is closer to him being a speaker than acting is to me being a speaker for this reason. When you're a stand-up, you still write your own material.
0: Mm.
1: As an actor, you're doing someone else's work.
0: Mm.
1: Someone else writes the script. Someone else has the idea until you develop your own content, which I've also done. But for the most part, I'm my I make my living making other people's dreams come true. They wrote it, it's their baby, it's their idea, and they want to give, they want to put it in the hands of someone who they esteem to be a masterful truth teller. It can lift these words off the page and make them real. The problem is so often we're doing roles. We don't even agree with like I've, I've played a rapist on television. I've played Satan in the X-Files. Satan. Really... Okay.
0: There's no, nothing... look that episode.
1: up. That's yeah. Crazy. It's in the fifth season, the 17th episode. Not that I remember, <laughs> but it's called all souls was the name of the episode. Wow. And, and so I don't consider there to be anything satanic about my actual life, the way I live it, but I was taking their script and bringing life to it. So we're all running out of time. You know this to be true. And that's not a bad thing, it's just a true thing. So, with the time that I have left, I don't want to spend all of it telling someone else's story. I want to tell my story. I want to share my feelings, my love. My inspiration, my connectivity, my eye contact. all of that. And so Steve and I are on the exact same page, brother. That's a, a
0: rear page though. Like not too many people have made that that epiphany that you and Steve have made to cross over. Yeah, they stay put forever.
1: You know, I think the truth is, Steve and I need to take the stage together. Perhaps it's something we'll do with you. Yeah, and I'm talking thinking. about live. I'm not talking about just in this format. I mean, going into a theater live
0: and really talking about revamping one's priorities. Wow. We just came up. I, I shut my thing off, but we just came up with a really good idea. I want to make a, a serious note of that. Steve, I'm going to, um, if you, if it's okay with you, I'll invite him to our clubhouse stage.
1: Absolutely.
0: I'm making a note here. He
1: is my brother from another mother, and I love him dearly, and I respect him dearly.
0: That That's a great idea. Wow. I okay. have the
1: same love and respect for the two of you. You thank know, I would I would do whatever I could for Steve, just like I'd do whatever I could for you.
0: All right, Glenn. Thank, thank you so much. I appreciate you, Glenn. So, folks, this has been an incredible interview with uh, Glenn Morshauer. And, um, folks, I don't know if, if this part, we didn't add this before, but Glenn was actually Clint Eastwood's boss at one point in time. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn, I, I do my research. The, the idea of that still,
1: <laughs> still makes me smile. You
0: know, yeah, that's funny.
1: The idea that as a, you know, as a little kid, the idea that I'm watching, uh, the good and the bad and the ugly, and I'm looking going, you know, someday I'm going to be his boss. <laughs>
0: Funny. So, guys, we're going to move into our question section now. So, Glenn, I got about 20 questions for you. Some of them are sure. really just super simple. Um, like the first one's really about uh your books. Do you have any books that you'd like to showcase or talk yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. I uh I know you did some with the, Kyle Wilson. The ones that
1: yeah, the ones that I've written have been collaborative books, and I've written three of those. Um, one with Kyle Wilson, one with Craig Deswalt, and another one called The Diamond from Within. Um and now it's time for me to write my own book. And I've been writing that book for, well, I guess you could say I'm not in a big hurry because I started writing it in 2006. And I've been, I've been simply writing life lessons as they unfold. And um, what's interesting is that I could almost call it a compilation because it's been written by not multiple authors, but multiple versions of me. I'm not who I was in 2006, and I think it's interesting to see how my opinions and angles and perceptions of moments have changed over time, but these moments are very predictable life moments of things that most people will face in the course of their lives, and um, I have a couple of titles for it, but it's all about paying attention to and honoring that whisper or that voice from within, and uh, that would be my fourth book when I get it out.
0: Voice and within.
1: I don't know if it'll be called that, but uh, that's the subject matter. Yeah. Is is listening to wisdom. listening to the whisper, you know,
0: and Glenn, if you need any help with that, that's actually my true passion, the writing part. You know, I, my three books here um, as a professor, actually, uh, wow. geez, Eight more days. It's February 2nd. When we're recording this folks, 2023, I wrote uh, my first book February 10th, 2013. It was published. Oh, so wow. t- 10 years. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to help you in any way for, your, Thank for your you. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. So thanks Glenn. All right. So Glenn, next question, what are your best acting tips? Maybe, uh, maybe two or three, maybe in a minute or two. My best
1: acting tips
0: is be truthful in your personal life. Um, be connected in your
1: personal life so that that truth and connectivity will show up in your performance I don't even like the word performance but your adaptation of the words um I also have some fun uh tips that I give people as how as to how to cure nervousness if you are nervous I always tell people to fill their shoes with syrup uh, and it's not a joke for real to put shoes uh put syrup in their shoes because you will be trust me the only one in the interview that day who has syrup in their shoes. And I started doing this 30, I guess, about 38 years ago, when I first put syrup in my actual shoes and went into an interview. And I thought, this is working like I thought it would, because I find myself so busy smiling that I don't really care what anybody in this room thinks. And I, I was having so much fun smiling over the notion of what I it was sort of like, I know something you don't know. And it worked uh, tremendously. And then I started putting little baby marshmallows. This is all true. Little baby marshmallows between my toes. And... um
0: You know, you have a great sense of humor, too. Like, I know it doesn't. uh, Thank you, bud. You see, you come off very serious until you start talking about putting marshmallows between your toes. And then everyone sees that you're you're like Steve Rizzo. (laughs)
1: Listen, I grew up doing comedies. And so uh, I tied the agency record, which was four jobs in a row, meaning read, book it, read, book it, read, book it, read, book it. And um, that record was standing for 30 years. I tied the record. And this was when I was in my mid-20s. And then uh, I decided that I wanted to be the sole possessor of the um, the record. So on the fifth job in route to the audition, I stopped at Ralph's Grocery Store. I don't know if they have Ralph's on the East Coast, but they're big in Southern California. And I went inside and started shopping for what I could do differently other than syrup and uh, marshmallows and honey and even Canadian bacon in my socks which i did at one point and i came up with the idea of purchasing some oscar meyer bologna (laughs) and let me let me tell you what i did with it bologna for whatever reason someone decided the bologna authorities of america decided that bologna should not be presented in a square shape isn't it interesting that ham and turkey will be in a square but bologna needs to be round. Who makes these decisions? I don't know. Is there a baloney committee? But I've never seen in my entire life a square a square of baloney. And that's so, a bunch of baloney. Yes, well done. <laughs> well done. So, um I discovered that when I took the baloney and folded it in half that it fit perfectly directly between my butt cheeks. And I'm not kidding. And I walked into an audition with unbeknownst to everybody there. I didn't walk in and go, listen, before we begin, uh, I'd like to announce to everyone here at CBS that I have baloney between my butt cheeks right now. And then just sit and look at everybody. No, of course not. So I did it covertly. Nobody knew, but it had me smiling at such a level of radiance that I wound up booking job five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Nine in a row, and that record hasn't even been touched. Nowhere near it, all these years later, and that was thirty plus, thirty more than thirty-five years ago. So, um, so you just told us your secret weapon. Yeah, you gotta you gotta <laughs> have fun, and I and I talk about this at my seminars all the time. Mm-hmm. You've got to remember to have fun. You know, it, it's a real tragedy when people decide that they're too old to play. Right now, I'm too old for that, and it's like, well, that's the reason you become old. You've become old because you've stopped playing. And I think you've got to continue to play. You've got to continue to laugh and continue to have fun. And when you're doing that, and and one other great tip, nerves are not your enemy. Just like I said, you know, Dr. Finance, I said, your job is not your enemy. Nerves are not your enemy. Nerves are fuel. Nerves are your coal that burns in your belly. Nerves are life's way of telling you, I care about this. I'm excited about it this is a big opportunity. I'm excited. So I would change that mindset to, I am am so excited. Look at my body. I'm so excited right now. Instead of, oh God, oh God. See, look at my face right now. If that's the face where I greet nerves that way and go, oh God, look at me. I'm so nervous. But instead I go, look at me. I am so jacked. I am so excited right now. Then from that excitement, you can accelerate and and you can do very well in the meeting, in the audition, but if you're if you've decided that nerves are your enemy, then now you are subject to collapse and you're working very hard to not let everyone see how nervous you are. Think of it as excitement. You'll be fine. The same is true when you speak to large audiences. You're not nervous about speaking. You're excited about it. And you tap into that. You get on stage. I tell you what, I would I would wonder about me if I didn't get excited. I would think something was wrong. So I'm excited before I take the stage all the time.
0: It's a beautiful thing. And Glenn, I asked you about best acting tips, and you started with one thing, and you we kind of directed here uh, digressed here. But I got to say, um, and if you can confirm this real quick, that what you just said was what actually got me looking like this on on camera because I wasn't even good with camera about two and a half years ago, and I got up to to make uh, some kind of video for for something for a yeah. speaking gig, and I said to a lady, "I said I can't do this. I'm I'm so nervous." And she said exactly what you said: "Just trust me on this. Just say the words. I'm I'm excited and believe it. And tr- let's try it again." And I never looked back. And that was what you just there said was is. exactly why I can do what I do because I didn't get it at that point.
1: Yeah, there it is. That's that's the deal. I don't have better tips than that, you know? Um, You got to believe it. There's that. And there's also, there's this one, which is don't do your scene. I say this to my students, my actors all the time. Don't do your scene about the story or about the pain or about the circumstance, but do it from the circumstance. So don't do a movie about divorce or the pain of divorce. Do the movie from the pain of divorce so that you go to ground zero, that this is so, and now I go. The seven magical words, this is so, and now I go. So I have to take a few beats to have it be so, so that I lean into the acceptance of, okay, this is who I am. I am a bank robber. This is who I am. I'm a husband. This is who I am. I'm a pastor. This is who I am. I'm the president of the United States, which I just recently played, by the way. And, right. and go into that, that mindset of this is so, and now I go. So those Glenn, are all
0: huge tips. Glenn, knowing what we, we know about like thinking, grow rich, and mindset, and all that stuff, right? Right. Being an actor, this is a great question. I'm very curious. Sure. By putting yourself in that state of mind for these negative roles that you just said you had to in order to be great, um, don't you think that it has some kind of negative effect on you? Even though it's not you, you're doing it for the sense of acting. To be great at acting, you have to jump into that over time, keep taking those negative roles. And would that would that affect your your life? In a negative it way? does not
1: me because of this. When I'm done with it, I do a release on it. I, I consciously do a release. At the end of the day, I go, so that was fantasy. And now I'm <laughs> returning to my life. So I can play the darkest character in the world all day in a TV series. And that is not going to turn me into a dark man because I understand that I pretend for a living. That's what I do. I can play a rapist, and that doesn't mean I'm going to become one, mm. right? So no, I, I don't I don't see it that way. I've played a lot of dark characters, and none of them have had some sort of dark after effect on me where I walked around going, I just haven't been the same. And my wife <laughs> says, would you like to make love? And I feel like, no, I've, I've not been the same ever since I played Satan. I, I don't even want to look at you anymore.
0: I want to set you on fire, right? No, I never went through that. Incredible. Thank you, Glenn. All right, Glenn, in a minute or less, um, you had a really famous TEDx talk. What was the main message between your TEDx talk, boomerangs and whispers? Yeah, whispers
1: and boomerangs. So the whispers whispers represent listening to what I call the voice of God, which is that inner voice, that directive that only has our best interest in mind. And boomerangs, I mean, I can sum it up very quickly. You said in a minute or less, very easy to do. Every action we take in the world, we're essentially signing a boomerang with love and our own signature. And we're saying, this is me. This is who I am. This is how I believe this moment should be handled. This is what I think is the correct way of handling it right now. This is the correct response, the correct behavior, the correct action. And I hurl it into the sky like this, you know, the way you throw a boomerang. And that when we do that, Every day as a way of life, boomerangs, the inevitable nature of a boomerang is that it knows how to return. That's what they do. So karmically speaking, if every day I get up and throw love into the sky and now I've got a meeting, right, with with Anthony, Dr. Finance, I've got a meeting with Dr. Finance this morning at 930, boom. So for the next couple of hours, boom, there's love that I'm throwing into the sky. Then collectively, I'm creating such a large swirling condition of boomerangs That after a period of time, I start getting pelted in the ear and the back of the head and the badge all over from really good love karma that has been hurled into the sky. And this is a great way to live. Just get busy loving, get busy loving. And here's some more love, and here's some more love, and here's some more help. Here's some more generosity. What can I do to make life better? There's a reason I call my course The Extra Mile, and that's because I teach people how to show up as more in every moment than the way their brother or sister would handle the same moment. You're going to handle it with greater love, greater generosity, greater clarity, greater commitment, greater follow-through, greater integrity. You're going to be the most that you can be in that moment. And I don't know of a finer way to live.
0: That's brilliant. Thank thank you, Glenn. Glenn, next question. um, And you're going to love this maybe in a minute or so. Are all the people that we met in our lifetime there to help us? 100%. Bad people, good people. 100%. But I want to be clear so that
1: we can get rid of all the doubters who are sitting there with their arms crossed like that. Going,
0: Hear them out, folks. Hear them out.
1: And and so what they're doing is they're going, you know, that's bullshit right there. (laughs) That's some bullshit. That's some optimistic, blind bullshit. Let me help those of you who may be reacting that way. To clarify, I didn't say they are there on a mission to help you. I said they're there to help you. I didn't say they know it. Because it's true that many people intend harm in the world. Hopefully, you don't have anyone like that in your life. But I'll promise you, people who do not care about others are scattered around the world. There's no question about it. Evil really does exist. And people do get up in the morning without having harmonious, loving feelings in their heart because they can't wait to help somebody. There are a lot of people that don't feel that way. There are a lot of people who just soon step on your head, right? and, And mash your face. That exists. Here's what I'm saying. Every person you meet in the course of your life is going to do one of two things. They're going to either show you how to live life, or they're going to show you how not to live life. Whether they intend to or not, that's the effect they're going to have. They're going to show up in a way where you look and go, you know, I really like Tony. What a cool dude, right? What a cool dude. What a great attitude. What an eager personality. I like being around him. And I mimic that. Or I can look and go, wow. And I can look and see the behavior of someone that I don't much care for and say, wow, you don't think about anyone other than yourself. You're ugly. You know nothing about compassion. And what I mean, you're physically ugly. I mean, that someone is... Being ugly to other human beings, you have an ugly tone and you're not nice and you're not fair. That's a big violation for me. You're not fair with people, right? You mistreat people. You're talking to someone. Well, then look at how they mistreat people. Remember what it felt like to be on the receiving end of that. And then, for God's sake, don't go do that to somebody else, in which case they've helped you because they've shown you that being an ass is not attractive and they've shown you that they've shown you that that losing your temper and being very volatile is not a great character trait they've shown you that thank you for showing me that right this is what you can say to them thank you for showing me that because or maybe it's someone who beat their kids for real regularly which is why neither of my kids have ever been hit by me And you know what? There's an old saying, spare the rod, spoil the child. Well, you know what? I spared the rod and neither one of my children are spoiled. Neither one of my children are jerks. They're both really sane, happy, well-adjusted people. And I didn't have to hit either one of them in order to achieve that. So I learned and I learned by being hit and doing things that weren't wrong and being hit for them. And it didn't feel good. And I remembered it. And so I was taught, don't do that, even though that wasn't the message. The message from them wasn't, I'm doing this so that you'll know not to do it. Believe me, that was not the intent. So it's up to the healthy mind to interpret everyone's presence in your life as help because they're showing you how to be or how not to be. Possibly hence the expression to be. Or not to be? I mean, for real, that is the question. To be this, yes, or to not be this? Okay, I'm going to consciously choose to not be that because it's not nice, because it's unfair, because it's cruel, because it's selfish, because it's thoughtless. So, yes to this, no to this. Thank you, life, for the clarity. Thank you, inspirational people, for inspiring me and uplifting me. Got it. I will serve you by replicating your input. And thank you for negative role models. Thank you for showing me how not to be. I think it's one of the greatest ways to handle life on life's terms.
0: Wow, Glenn, that last like two minutes. I mean, we we really, we could put that on repeat and just, just blow it out to the world because there's so much gems there. Glenn, yeah. um, Real quick, thirty seconds. Do you want to? I, I didn't ask you this before. Do you want to do a quick? Give uh, us a quick tour of your your bookshelf. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you <laughs> seem put a lot of thought into that.
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, this is King of the Hill up here. You can see it. I guest starred on that show multiple times. Wow. uh, I did King of the Hill. It's one of my favorite shows. Also on Fox, Mike Judge's show. Uh, the bowling pin that you see up here just came from the movie I just finished, which is a movie all about bowling. And they gave me a bowling pin that was signed by the whole cast. Uh 59 is the year uh, when I I was born in 59. And so when I turned 59, a friend of mine made that. And it is a, uh, when you look at it real close, it's every credit I've ever done miniaturized all around it. And it's just beautiful. Um, This right here is a picture of Matt Zucre. And Catherine Franco, Matt Zucre, played my son on The Resident, which is the show I do on Fox Television now. Two of the coolest people in my life. So I like to keep cool people nearby. This is Cecily Adams, and I want to show her because she was very dear to me. Still is in my heart, although she lost her life about almost 20 years ago. But are you old enough to remember Don Adams from Get Smart? Yeah. Yeah, so that's Don's daughter. Wow. So that was Cecily Adams. That was on my 40th birthday. And uh, she died of lung cancer um, almost, as I said, 20 years ago. This, my woodshop teacher from eighth grade made for me. He didn't make it when I was in eighth grade, but look what it says. It says the extra mile. Mm -hmm. And he made that for me in honor of this course that I teach about being especially conscious. So I've I've just got everything. I'm going to show you one more which is this is from our wedding day when we were 19 and 18. Hopefully you can see that. There we are. Yeah, That's us at 19 and 18. That's my brother Brian in the getaway car is our driver. <laughs> and my brother Brian passed away two years ago. So um, that's right. us when we were kids. And that was 19 and 18. And now here we are 63 and 62. So I've just got, I got everything. Okay, I lied. I said one more. I'm going to show you one more. This is from the show Manhunt, where I play the president of the United States, and that is Andrew Johnson. You can see there on the left, and that's me on the right as Andrew Johnson, and that is coming out very soon on Apple television. Um, very excited. So this is just kind of a, uh, a trophy case where I keep a lot of cool things. Um, can you see the 24 box back here?
0: Yeah, that's one of the first things I saw, actually. Okay,
1: well, let me show you that one. That is Kiefer Sutherland. That is Kiefer Sutherland as the action hero, and that's (laughs) Kiefer's signature on the box. He signed that for me um, about 15 years ago. He gave me that as a gift because I lasted on that show longer than anyone except Kiefer. So, listen, I've I've had and am continuing to have an amazing life. And this is this is my office. And yes, I've still got a whole bunch of CDs back. That's here. one of the other
0: things I was thinking. I'm like, what is he doing with this? Like CDs? what's he doing with CDs? <laughs> well, what it tells you is that I'm
1: old school and and so i'm I'm kind of loyal to my CD collection. Uh, anyway, this is my, this is my office. It's upstairs. It's beautiful. let me let me show you this. So I look outdoors. This is an upstairs office in my home. We have a lovely home here. That's outdoors, you probably can't see the snow out there, but uh, I've got my lights here in the office, and this is where I do all my business uh, there there's a There's a camera looking <laughs> back at us
0: That's funny
1: anyway, you can edit all of that out
0: no it, it's okay um I actually uh I, I interviewed paul um Paul Hutchison, I think it was last week, yeah, and, uh, he was giving us a tour of his ten million dollar house out oh wow. Yeah, it was like 10 bedrooms and you know all this crazy fancy stuff. Yeah, well I caught
1: the tail end of that uh clubhouse interview. He oh, seemed like a really cool dude. He's quite the philanthropist.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so so thank you, Glenn. Appreciate you, man. All right. So that was a great tour, by the way. Um, all right, we're real deep question. I don't know how I can ask this with the with the time frame, but maybe a minute or less. Do we have free will? There's a there's a question yes. beyond
1: this. Yes, there you go. Okay. How's that for a quick? That's Glenn's quickest answer. Yes, <laughs> we are always at choice. And here's the thing. While we might not immediately change what's going on, we can certainly change our chronic opinionitis regarding it. We can change our perception of the moment. And as Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when we change the way we look
0: at things, the things we look at change. So the answer is yes. Thank you, Glenn. The next question was, I wasn't sure you were going to give a yes on that. and Maybe I should have. But I put, uh, if not, okay, just hear, hear the question if you can. If not, are we all essential actors? Because we, you know, if you, if, you, if you think about it, like, if we couldn't control, if we didn't have um, free will, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, we mm-hmm. think we have free will, but we, let's say we don't have free will, right? Then essentially, tying into your industry, maybe we're all kind of actors. Like, we're, we're acting, oh. be somebody, but well, we don't have control. We think we have control, but we're acting, so, our soul is acting. Right? Yeah,
1: I story. actually uh, subscribe to that belief that we that's are very all deep, at- though. that we are all actors. I, and it's certainly not the first time that's been brought up in my midst. I've held that belief to be true for a long time. But listen, if we don't have choice, then what is the point of all of this? There is no point. There is no point for life to have ever been created. We're wasting our time. We're puppets on a string. We are helpless bowling pins who are inanimate objects. There's nothing we can do about anything. And I just don't believe in the weakness of humankind. I think there are certain things we have no control over, and all we can do is control our response. But I think that certainly the majority of things that show up in our lives are as a direct result of the frequency we live within. In the same way that if you want country Western, and that plays on 95.2, If you tune in very close, 95.4, you still don't get the station. The only way you're going to get the country western or the rock and roll or the new age music that you desire is if you go to that frequency. And life very much works that way. You've got to think about basically what do I want my life to look like, feel like, and taste like, and sound like. So let's say that life is a song and I've got a particular song in mind for my life, then I have to dial myself into the frequency where that music is being broadcast and you don't get credit for being close. 92.5 is where that is being broadcast and 92.6 is not going to get it. And 103.7 is not going to get it. So you've got to dial yourself into that frequency. And if you do, your life will show up in a corresponding manner.
0: And Glenn, you know, on top of that, right? Like, I, I've been down, as a scientist. I've been down that road a long time ago, where I'm like, all right, well, then this could be, all be pointless if we don't control ourselves. Then, then what, right? But that's a destructive thought because of like what you just said. Like to think about life where we don't have any control over any of this. We're just this bowling ball. Then we, it, it, it doesn't help us get to where we go. So
1: no, it's a pretty victimized perspective yeah, to have, right? And yeah. I don't I don't live that. There's no part of me that esteems myself to be a victim.
0: Yeah, there's no point. Right. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate that.
1: No. Right. Well, hey, look, if you can live with hope or without hope, and it's your choice, which one would you choose? Of course. Yeah, yeah of course. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna die either way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you really are. That's yeah. the outcome, inevitably. So, but while you're still here, living in a way that reserves the right to envision and to hope and to aspire. Those are all ways that, frankly, will put a bigger smile on your face and make your life more pleasurable to live. Mm. Whereas if you if all you see is hopelessness and pointlessness, then uh, obviously that's not going to be very fun. You're not going to have a good time. So you have a choice. Would you like to have a good time before you die or a shitty time before you die? <laughs> I mean, that's a really great yeah. way to look at it. You want to feel good until you leave here or do you want to feel like shit until you leave here? I want to feel good.
0: Mm. So you take the positive approach. Absolutely. absolutely. So Glenn, next great, great response. Glenn, next question. Jim Cathcart, Hall of Fame speaker, was on here. And uh, he said, um, we had a really great conversation about speakers and actors. And I think we briefly talked about this on the phone call on Friday night. Mm -hmm. A great speaker, he says, is a great person who speaks pretty well. I put dot, 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 right? Not a person who is not great, who gives great performances, again, dot, dot, dot. That's an actor, dot, dot, dot. You must first develop the greatness within you. Thoughts? My thought is how much I want to meet him.
1: <laughs> because he sounds like he was cut from He's the in same your backyard. cloth. backyard. You don't know, Jim? He, he sounds like he was cut from the same cloth. It sounds like our we have the same parents. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I, I wholeheartedly support everything you just said. I think that's that's it. I think he hit the nail on the head.
0: And it's amazing coming from an actor who who play who has two uh both feet and two to both these crazy worlds. So you see it clearer than anybody else. Well, that's why I wanted and, to ask you this question. And
1: honestly, my school is built, Dr. Finance, on growing your humanity. In other words, let's make sure that you're operating full throttle as a productive citizen in this world who feels good about residing within their uniquely assigned sack of skin that's what i call it you have a uniquely assigned sack of skin how good does it feel to be you let's build a great person first priority 1 let's build a great person let's get you excited about being alive let's get you on assignment so that you see your life as a gift and an assignment and then from that place of greatness, the words are secondary because you're going to be radiating the truth, and people will hear a message of integrity, they'll they'll witness a, a message of congruency, and of reality, and it will be bullshit-free. And I got to tell you, audiences love bullshit-free speakers. They love them. They don't like listening to a canned speech that is all cleverly written and it's got all the right pauses and all the right words. I don't have a script here in front of me. I'm just speaking from my heart on stage that is so appealing. So I got to tell you, truthful versus polished. Audiences will take truthful all day long. Truthful. And especially if it is shared from a place of vulnerability and honesty. That kind of message touches hearts and changes lives. A well-polished speech probably makes the audience feel good during the talk, but do they walk away from it really feeling altered? And to me, the staying power of a talk is the reason we give a talk. Have you said things to the audience today that are sustainable? Sustainability is huge. Did you learn something today that changed the trajectory of your life? Did you learn something today watching this interview between the two of us that five years from now you're still implementing? And I would certainly hope that that's true. Do,
0: do you ever just just real quickly? Do you, do you ever make a did you ever make a speech that like you had taking notes and you're you're reading it off the paper? Or Never. almost all your speeches are coming from your heart.
1: Never. And I've also done a lot of eulogies. For some reason, I'm the guy they ask you to talk about when you die. I'm I'm the guy they go to to say, would you talk about him or would you talk about me? So um, I've eulogized a number of people in my life. And again, really reading a eulogy is not nearly as penetrating as just setting the paper down. You can write down the broad strokes ideas and look at them the night before if you wish. But I think at some point you got to set the paper down and look at your audience and make eye contact and talk about the kind of man. Johnny was or the kind of woman Barbara was and the difference they made in your life. You can't look down and go Johnny was a really kind man who changed my life
0: you know you know, Glenn, also you know I mean so somebody when I first started learning how to, to professionally speak, they actually told me Tony, Tony you got to stick these earbuds in your ear and and record all your 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 uh, your speech so and, you, and you you'll you'll just say what they what you already said before. I'm like, I do that for a whole hour? Like, yeah, like everybody does it. Then I started getting into like professional what? speaking on Clubhouse. Like, and I'm like, what? Yeah. And I, I couldn't believe it. This was a professional telling me this. I'm
1: sorry. I have a bag here. I need to vomit. Give me just a second. <laughs> I need to throw up.
0: Oh my god. I mean, really? And I guess that's the difference between a whole fame speaker and everybody else, right? But well, anyway, to wrap up the to wrap up the question, Glenn. What a what a thing to hear! I've never even heard of that. <laughs> yeah, they wow. they're, they sell them a lot these earpieces. But um the question about what Jim Cathcart quote um the reason I also thought you would you know just to wrap it up real quick is because a lot of famous actors um we both know people that know them. Uh, we don't have to say names. Yeah, yeah. Them, you, you turn the microphone on and start having an interview like this, they wouldn't ma- make it for two minutes. Like they have not, they're an empty shell inside. And I think they haven't really got to know their soul. So I commend you what you're doing because you're making actors, real people too. So letting them know about, introduce them to themselves. Really, really received. Thank you for that acknowledgement. Thank you. You're welcome. Well needed too. So to to connect to the next question, from your experience, how many actors cross into the speaking world? How many are, are there are like Jim Cathcart said, great, Leaders, great people. I think
1: I think Jim Carrey is a great speaker. I don't know if you've ever listened to Jim Carrey, Denzel Washington. And I've worked with Jim and Denzel, both. They are great speakers. Uh their aliveness quotient is through the roof. And they don't need scripts to do it. They're they're really heart-centric people and dynamic people and very alive people. But you ask how many? Very, very small percentage. I think actors are used to working with scripts. And so that does not necessarily
0: make for a great speaker. Even I don't famous think famous celebrities too, right? Even famous ones.
1: I'm talking about the famous ones. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I just think it's a super small percentage. That's incredible. I think Ten they're one. better they're better at, at being famous and they're better at signing autographs. And um a lot of them haven't spent the time. They're just used to working with a script. That's all I know how to say. They haven't spent the time getting up in front of an audience. Um, I'll make this brief. I, I can tell you this in like 45 seconds, but years ago, the best talk I've ever given in my life came right on the heels of having just said my final goodbye to somebody that I knew I would never see again. And it was someone that I loved with all of my heart and they were dying. And I went to their bedside in, uh, Marietta, California, and then went from there to San Diego to speak. It was not a long drive. And so two hours after I had said my so longs and I was a dreadful, teary mess, I cried all the way to San Diego. And I decided to not hold back. And I changed the trajectory of my whole talk that night. I don't plan my talks anyway, but I had a topic about which I wanted to speak. And instead... I changed that topic to the vulnerability that I was feeling in the moment, and I cried through my talk, and I've never received more emails saying that was the most brilliant, authentic, real, connected, feeling, and vulnerable talk I have ever heard anywhere, anytime. So I'm not a big fan of hiding how we really feel. I think one of the worst pieces of instruction we were ever given was this phrase, real men don't cry. Which would strongly suggest that we think that tear ducts were accidentally installed in men, that that was a cosmic mistake, which certainly can't be the truth. Clearly, tear ducts were installed in men and women both for good reason. And it's because when we are feeling hurt in that way, it's healthy to cry. But we were taught that crying was a bad thing. And that's why, as soon as someone cries, We are so idiotic in this country. We can't wait to hand somebody a tissue. Make it stop. We can't wait to give them a tissue. Make it stop. You're making me uncomfortable to see you cry like that. And so what I've been coaching for years is if you don't get the inappropriateness of trying to stop people from crying, when what they need more than anything is to cry, they need to feel their feelings and they need to vent it. And instead, you're trying to rush them to stop it with a tissue. I would ask you if someone told you they had the worst case of diarrhea, would you hand them a cork? (laughs) I mean, really, would you hand them a cork and say, well, here you go. You can stop that. No, you wouldn't because you understand that what they need to do is they need to get it out of their body. That's what they need. They don't need a cork. They need to express it. Whatever doesn't belong in their belly and they've got upset, and they're drinking Pepto-Bismol or whatever. The idea is they need to get it out of them so that they can get on with things. And tears are no different. You wouldn't give someone a cork if they had diarrhea, and you should stop thrusting a tissue into someone's life every time they start crying. Hold the tissue and give it to them when they're done. But don't give it to them to stop their tears. You're not helping when you try to stop somebody's tears.
0: Glenn, that is a brilliant point. Glenn, what what makes you rare as an actor, though? Like why how how have you got to this point where you know all you know about the speaking world self-development and 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 can be yourself and an actor at the same time which you fit if you look at a Venn diagram actors speakers and that little overlap is so tiny as you just mentioned right. And you're right in here like what makes you so rare maybe 30 seconds. I'm I'm, I'm well read. And um, I've
1: also played so many different prototypes, Dr. Finance, that honestly, that's what led to these understandings. I've played so many different people in the course of my life and all of them are still in there. And all of them have shown me about what it's like to show up in life as that person. They've all done that. So collectively, I have a whole army, this cornucopia of personalities that are well maintained but each one has taught me about their perception of life i'm i'm a very curious man so i've always wanted to peel back what is behind the behaviors of the human species i am a human and i want to discover everything about my humanity everything you know i think that one of the greatest tragedies is that graveyards all over the world are filled with people who colossally underlived their life not relative to their neighbor relative to their capacity. There's a big difference between that. I don't think you and I are competing in this world. I don't think it's important that anybody out-earn somebody or out-express or outdo. but are you burning the full assigned wattage of your life? Are you burning at full capacity? By the time you reach your end of your life, are you doing what could have been done? And an even more poignant question is, Ooh, and this one starts getting really painful, but I want to invite everybody who's watching this to consider this. And I'm going to look right into camera to say this. Is it possible that somebody else inhabiting your body right now could be doing a better job with it than you are? Ooh. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big question. Would someone else be taking better care of their body than you are? Would a different personality inhabiting your body be taking better care of your finances than you are? Would they be taking better care of their relationships than you are? It's an important discussion, and it's a discussion between you and you, so that you can stop and go, you know what I want to be said by the time I reach the end of my life? I don't want it to ever be said by anyone or certainly by my creator that someone else could have done a better job inhabiting this body than I did. And that's what guides my life. And that's the most important thing I will say in this entire interview, to get to the end of your life and say nobody would have done a better job of this assignment in this body than I did.
0: Oh, that's deep. <laughs> Took me on a path right there, Glenn. Uh, Glenn. Uh, very. Thank you for a great share, Glenn. Uh, just to finish this line of thought up, sure. if all actors realized what we just talked about here, between the relationship between speaker speakers and actors, do you think they would cross over? Do you think that they would would start to learn themselves better, become better leaders? possibly be better speakers or even the speakers at all
1: the answer is yes the answer is yes and proof of that is if i didn't believe that i wouldn't teach the classes i teach
0: mm. so you actually like believe sorry to interrupt you glenn you're yes a, you're a bridge between that venn diagram between the actors getting into and and the speakers getting into that box between both of them you're that Bam. bridge you're Bam. the venn diagram connector
1: that's exactly what i do i i coach the potentiality of humankind. That's what I do in my classes. And anyone who's ever studied with me will tell you that the first 90 minutes of every week of that class is devoted to discussions of wellness and the capacity of what it is you are capable of in this lifetime. The remembrance that you are an intelligent creature designed by intelligence living within an intelligent system. And that life is a really cool gig. And let's go around the room and talk about some examples of of what this week looked like in your life. So we practice a daily remembrance of the visual of having out swam four to 500 million sperm, between 400 and 500 million sperm to get here in the first place. That's not an act of a weakling. That's an act of a strong character. That's, that's our nature. Our nature is to win. Our nature is to be strong. So I teach strength and it's strength being taught to actors. So yeah, I think that more would do it. But I don't know. I don't know how large I think, you know, here's the belief I hold. I believe that there will that you've heard the saying after all is said and done, there's always far more said than done. I'm sure you've heard that after all is said and done, there's far more said than done, meaning there are a lot of dreamers and not nearly as many action takers. So I'm here to elevate the number of people that say yes to the entirety of their lives. But I understand that this world is full of people who are in a coasting modality. And there is a good chance that they will end their lives in that same coasting modality, having never fully challenged themselves to see what it is they could have done in this lifetime. And now is the time to do it, not later. So I I, I believe in it. I believe that number would go up, but I don't think it would go up dramatically.
0: And what would you even do to people like who already superstar actors? Like how could you, they're already been t- acting for 50 years or in every movie you can name of. Uh, and they, they still haven't figured out their own selves out at 70 years old or 80. Years I old.
1: would say you've still got work to do between now and the time you die, because what you've done in terms of the movies, that's a nice contribution. And as you know, as a society, we appreciate your artistic contribution, but now What are you going to do about letting us know who it is you really are? So we've seen all these characters, and now we'd actually like to meet you, Mm -hmm. and we'd like to see you be real. I think that's the biggest uh, challenge that actors have. I I think they don't know how to be real, because they think if they don't perform, that they're not going to be accepted. And I think this is operating at epic levels, where 90 plus percent, probably about 97% of actors are really still wanting to be just loved and accepted. And so however they can create that outcome, okay, I'll be this person. And then that will be special and you'll love me that way. But what if you take all of that and say, we don't care. We don't We don't care about your Oscar. We don't care about your Emmy. I mean, congratulations. That's great that you won it. Now, we don't care that you were nominated. We don't care about however many millions of dollars you made on that movie or that TV series. We don't care. What does it feel like to wake up and be you go? Why do you think you breathe air? Go. What is your legacy? What message do you want to leave? Well, I want people to remember me from my performance. And no, that's not allowed. Talk about your heart. What do you feel about being alive? What does that mean? That's what I would challenge well-known actors to do.
0: Wow, I, I just got goosebumps, Glenn, because I got a feeling that some person that we probably know might be watching this one day. And I hope so. It. We might shake them up a little bit. I hope so. Because
1: right. in the grand scheme of things, whether or not you win an Oscar is about as significant as a pimple on a gnat's ass. <laughs> I somehow don't feel that all through eternity, people are going to be worshiped because they won an Oscar. It's a thing that happens, it's a beautiful thing, but it does not define your worth as a human being.
0: Thank you, Glenn. All right, Glenn, I'm going to ask the next questions in speed read format. So figure 20 seconds each if you're if you're ready. For All it. right. Good. You got it. All right. What were your favorite movies that you played in 20 seconds?
1: Uh, Black Hawk Down, by far, was my favorite movie. And my favorite television series was the series 24.
0: Awesome. Fastest way to become a well-paid actor. So you can allow 30 seconds on that.
1: Know your worth and settle for nothing
0: less than that. All right. And Clubhouse. If you want to spend a moment, just tell us about Clubhouse, your experience, why you're still on there, what, what you get of being in Clubhouse. Because let's face it, a lot of folks have left that were celebrities and stuff, but you and I, we're, we're still sticking around. We, we probably get the same thing.
1: Um, Clubhouse, I think, is, Clubhouse is a blessing. It's been a life changer for me. Um, I remember early on in Clubhouse, it feeling like a form of an addiction, and I've never been addicted to anything, but I sure did it a lot. And um, I don't have the time to do it very often now. But but I love the idea of coming together in a global format to have a conversation with people all over the world at any hour of the day. There's not an hour of the day that you can't go on and find some people on the other side of the world who are discussing spirituality, wellness, um, wholesomeness, uh, income earning, being an actor, being a basket weaver, being a snow skier, whatever you have decided is important to you when I first signed on they asked you what your interests are I said religion spirituality all things acting all things wellness and that's it and so what pops up on my screen are those those four categories and I love it and I've gotten to know I mean you and I met through clubhouse I've gotten to know Michelle geski my greatest single find in all of clubhouse um she's my dear friend and I don't know if you've heard her speak but she's in a lot of the gratitude rooms. And so uh, I'm a big fan of clubhouse and I think it's helping a tremendous number of people. It's giving them a, a place to come and express themselves freely without any judgment at all and to learn and to be inspired and to get to know people clubhouse. I'm, I'm a major, major fan.
0: Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate you, Glenn. All right, Glenn, we're going to wrap us up. We're going to go into the uh, questions, the temple questions I've asked all the major, spe- everyone pretty much on this podcast, Figure about 10, 20 seconds each, we could run right through this and we'll and then we'll finish it up. Can I'll try book... my best
1: to be less
0: verbose. No, that's a you're doing great. You're okay. doing really, really good. And I listen, no rush from this side. So can one book change the world?
1: Yes, one book that is processed well, but I think the more books you read, the better off you are.
0: Thank you, Glenn. What role has networking played in your life?
1: Significant, but I never really thought of it as networking because I think net networking can be uh, artificial at times, where people are only trying to get to know people because of what they can do for them. So, to me, being of service to others is a much better plan than networking. How can I be of service? How can I, how can I help you? Um, how can I make this moment better? And that's how you build sustainable relationship capital, which is far more helpful than uh, network, the networking. I think networking can be actually nauseating at times. What are you doing today? Well, you know, I'm going to the studio. I'm I'm going to be networking instead of, I'm going to connect with some people that I think are really cool. And I've loved working with them. And we're going to go kibitz, which is a a Jewish word. I love it. We're going to go kibitz with one another a little bit. Um, So yeah, I think, I think being of service is stronger than networking.
0: And as an extension of that, is mentoring important? And who are some of your mentors?
1: Mentoring is huge. Um, I've had several. Current dear friend of mine, T.A. Taylor, here in Dallas, is my strongest current living mentor. And uh, he is both an acting uh, director. He's an actor. He's a director. He is a friend of mine that I unfortunately didn't get to study with because I was too young uh, or too old, rather, at the time. I, I had already grown up and he ran a Company called Katie Studio here in Dallas, and we've been best friends for over twenty years. And he now teaches with me at my studio. Um, he has left the greatest imprint on my heart of any of my friends. Male and my dear friends Catherine um, Franco and Yasmin Ryback are uh, to Ken Walls. As you know, Ken and I are you know I haven't known Ken twenty plus years, but Ken is another bestie that has left a huge mark in my life. So I've had several mentors. And I'm I'm great for them all, and and then you know I like to think of myself as a mentor for a number of people. So I think it's possible to be mentored and be a mentor, both. And I think it's important to be
0: both in life. Yeah, and, and sometimes you can have both with the same person, right? Yes, like I'm learning from you right now, but maybe if we start talking about finance, maybe I can teach you something. You know, it's there's like-
1: no doubt about it. I call that co-mentoring, and. T.A. and Ken and I and Yasmeen and, and uh, Catherine, we all co-mentor one another. My wife and I have been co-mentoring each other for 46 years.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate it. Great response. Um, what are your favorite financial books? Maybe one or two or three.
1: <laughs> you, you, it's The only financial books I've read are all by Laurel <laughs> Langmeyer. So anything Laurel has ever written, Laurel is such a sweet gal and very knowledgeable, masterfully so. Um, so and I don't I have her books, but I don't know that I have them here I think they're in my bedroom yeah, they're on my bedside table but Laurel Langmire and you know laurel yeah, uh, her before. she's she's the only only financial book I've ever read in my life
0: Wow how about business or money or investing any of those books none you have you ever read uh, Think and Grow Rich I have only thumbed through it I've never read the book. So that's wow. an
1: honest. That's an honest answer. I have it downstairs. Um, don't have it up here. I have another library downstairs, but um, yeah, I have never read that all the way through.
0: That's amazing. I, I would have thought because you you have like all everything he talks about. So I just wrote the thirteen uh, co-authored thirteen steps to riches book with. Eric oh, Swanson, nice! With all these people. Oh, and, Eric Swanson did it. Yeah, yeah. He's got. All you know, amazing. I know
1: Eric as well.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, Sharon Lecter was in there, Kevin Harrington. And basically, the, thir- the Think and Grow Rich has 13 Steps to Riches. That's how he, Napoleon Hill does it. Okay. But we took a, we took every one of those steps and made a book for it. And I had to reread it again after 10 years. And everything you talk about and already know, he basically, he said, that's why, like, some books, but uh, if, if you can, I would definitely encourage you because you will love everything he's saying. You would I think
1: everything I've shared with you today comes from Trial by Fire. Yeah. You know, like just School of Hard Knocks. That's where I've done most of my learning. Thank you. I will say the most helpful book I've ever read was a book called God's Way of Life by Adele Gerard Tinning, And I read this book 15 years, no, more than that, more than 20 years ago. And right after I read it, I was in tears by the end of the book. And it's not a long read. It took me about five, six hours to read it. And I read it all in one sitting. And then I said, I've got to talk to the author. I've got to talk to the author. And this was back when we had a thing called directory assistance. You old enough to remember that where you would call one five 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 and then whatever the area code was, one, two, one, two. And I called San Diego Information because that's where she lived. And I was given her number. And I thought, please God, let it be the same, Adele Tenning. And this voice answered, Hello. Hello. And I said, Is this Adele? And she goes, it is. Who is this, honey? And I said, this is Glenn shower We don't know each other, but sweetheart, did you write a book called God's Way of Life? And she goes, yes, have you read it? And I said, I have. She said, are you coming to our love rally this week in San Diego? I said, well, if that's an invitation, yes, I will. I will <laughs> gladly accept. And I went down there. She said, I'll be the little silver-haired woman who's on stage. I said, well, I'll be the redheaded dude in the back of the room. She said, after it's over, will you come to my house for some apple pie? She was 83 years old. And she gave me so much over the last three months of her life. She died three months after I met her. And she taught me about love like nobody's business, about love and purposeful living. And I thank you, Adele, for that.
0: Wow, that's, that's an incredible story.
1: It's called God's Way of Life, Adele Gerard Tinning. How was her apple pie? Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I think I still have a little bit of it around my waistline all these years later.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Glenn. Glenn, next question uh, of, was about money. Now, we're tied into money, okay? Do we need money to survive? Maybe t- 20 seconds. In this world, yes.
1: Now, that's the short answer. In the United States of America, Yes. I know it makes it, uh, it just, let's put it this way. It makes it a hell of a lot easier. Uh, it does not define your spiritual worth or your emotional worth or your worth as a human being, but it just opens up options that you don't have when you have no money. Hmm. You know, it depressurizes your life. And now you've I would, been poor
0: before too, right, Glenn? You've experienced I've, poverty. And-
1: I've never experienced poverty. Um, and if I had, I would tell you that. I've never been poor. I've always been able to pay my bills, for which I'm grateful. But what I know is when people are in financial struggle, it's tough to get on with other things because there's, I think financial pressure is a very real thing. And as an actor, if I had been too prideful to work as a waiter, I would never have acquired uh, what I've acquired in my career because I would have needed the job too badly. Hmm. And you know what I mean. Desperation is not attractive. It's not attractive in the business world, and it's not attractive in the dating world. If somebody is desperate to be in a relationship with you, the average person will run from that. So anyone who wants to succeed in business, look at whatever it is that is generating desperation in your life and address that. First and foremost, we've got to get rid of any sense of desperation. You don't need to walk around the world needing that or needing that person or needing that car or needing anything. Wanting is okay, but needing is a whole different ball of wax.
0: Great response. Thank you, Glenn. Next question Is finance necessary for everyone? Now, finance, I'm talking about the science of finance, learning about money, learning about wealth and how to manage it and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, I think so, because that's how, again, you have sustainable wealth. That's how you maintain. It's one thing to be a one trick pony and you have a period in your life for 10 years where you're comfortable and then it all turns to doo doo. That's not very helpful. So, yeah, learning about what makes money sustainable, what is what is allowing your worth to grow, how to not have the financial iceberg melt. That's what I call it, the financial iceberg. If you're lucky enough to acquire a large iceberg upon which to live financially, you don't want to see it melting into the ocean. So there are sustainable tactics to hold on to your wealth. And that way you
0: can breathe because you have the comfort of options. So yes, yes, and yes. Thank you, Glenn. Glenn, three more questions left. How important is having a purpose in business? And oh, actually, that's a machine gun question. What is your purpose?
1: I think it starts with your purpose for breathing air, and then that rolls over into your purpose for business. I think everything is uh, an offshoot of why you've decided you're here to breathe. Uh, I'm here I to be everything I was designed to be and to encourage others to do the same. That's my mission statement for life. And that is true, whether it's in my personal life or in my business life, the principle for which I'm there remains constant. I love that. Can you say that one more time? My purpose is? To be all that I was designed to be and simultaneously assist others in doing the same. Wow.
0: That was well thought out. That's one of the best responses I heard. I like that.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh,
0: What what would you like to accomplish in the next 10 years or so? and Why?
1: Just more, and this is not a bullshit answer, just more of the same. I'm really happy with my life and to just continue doing what I'm doing. I'm not here to climb the Swiss Alps. That's for somebody else, metaphorically or literally. I'm in love with my life just as it is and just as it is not. So whatever amount of time I'm granted from this point moving forward, I'm grateful. I don't have a big bucket list. Uh, my bucket list is very small. And one of the things I had on that list was playing the president of the United States. And I got a chance to do that this year. And that'll come out here in the springtime. Um, that was so a it, pivotal, if, pivotal sorry, moment in my life.
0: Sorry to interrupt you, Glenn. If, if, uh, if it was in the cards for you to be the rock, we were talking about this earlier as as in terms of uh, celebrity status at that level, the highest level as an actor, would you, ta- would you accept that as your fate? if that was in the cards for you?
1: Oh, sure. I would accept it. But is it my goal? Not at all. Not even slightly. And if someone said, so you could trade. And and I mean this literally. If, If the life fairy said, just so you know, we can hit a switch and you can trade and you can have his humongous body, you can also have his humongous bank account, but everything about it, you get to have his life, I would say thank you, but no thank you. I would pass.
0: And this is a bonus question. What's your favorite CD on that shelf back there?
1: Oh God, I've got so many. Probably, <laughs> probably some James Taylor music. Okay. I love some James Taylor, man. James Taylor Ooh.
0: makes all things well. How's it going? All right. Last question. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, uh, this thanks.
1: is going to time out well because I've got a dental appointment I've got to get to. Absolutely. What would you what would you like to be your legacy to this world? One sentence. That I loved with all my might. And I helped remind people. Of the beauty of life and help them find their
0: way beautiful thank you glenn glenn i want to thank you for being here again i'm honored to have you here and i love to leave the floor to you if anything you'd like to say before we conclude i want to talk about your books and any anything at all your website where to find you the floor is yours glenn um yeah, I think this has
1: been incredibly thorough. Anyone who would like to reach out to me directly can do so. Just by sending me a Facebook Messenger, I'm not very active on uh, on some of the other social media platforms. Um, so the best way for me is old school via Facebook Messenger. Uh, if you'd ever want to attend any of my classes, everyone is entitled to a free audit. We're not on a recruiting mission. Our classes are packed, but if you'd like to see what it is we do, and especially not even just for acting, but for people that just want to bolster their confidence, the backbone with which they live, especially people that are into sales that want to learn about how to express in a way that is magnetically attractive. Reach out to me on Facebook Messenger, and I'll make sure you're given a link so that you can come and attend one of our Monday day, night, or Tuesday day, night sessions. Just let me know. What's your website address, Glenn? Well, it would be through Facebook. I'm saying so just Glenn with two N's and my last name is spelled M-O-R-S-H-O-W-E-R. You can reach me on Facebook.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Glenn and Glenn. I appreciate you being here. And folks, if you want to check him out, uh we're we're about 90% sure. We're a- almost positive. We're gonna have him uh on Clubhouse next Friday, February tenth, twenty twenty-three, unless you're you know, thousand years into the future. He'll be there between seven and nine PM Eastern time. So That'll be super, super cool. Check them out there. We might have a few other pop-up guests like Steve Rizzo join us as well. Thank you, folks, again for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Anthony Creative Forth, also known as Dr. Finance, on the Dr. Finance Live podcast. Here's my website, drfinance.info. I'm going to post this out to YouTube and and blast it out to all the 20-plus major podcast directories. So definitely follow, like, and subscribe, comment where you can. And if you want to learn more about finance, The Necessity of Finance was my first book, I wrote as a finance professor about 10 years ago. Then The Most Important Lessons in Economics and Finance. And finally, in 2016, I published a 500-plus page book called The Survival of the Richest, marrying all the biggest sciences in humanity to each other, biology, finance, economics, and survival. And then How to Save the World with that book, too. So check it out, folks. Check Glenn out on Facebook and, and Clubhouse. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks again, everyone. Bye-bye now.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Finance. Can I can I have one line? Oh, go ahead, absolutely. On my On my outgoing message, when someone leaves a message on my phone, it says the final words, and it's a short message, but what I say is this, and I've said it for years, and so many people comment on it that it bears repeating. It says, go out and make it a great day, and by all means, help someone else do the same. And that's what I'd like to say to all of you Go out today and make it a great day, and by all means, help someone else do the same. God bless you guys.
0: Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate
1: you. You bet.